It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Welcome Maui. to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. A critical reckoning. Uh, yes, it's a critical reckoning now. I'm Mark. I'm Ben. And um, we've still got guests. Please introduce yourselves again. Oh my god. Oh, I wasn't expecting this. Hi. Uh, uh, I, I'm Danny. <laughs> Whoops. And uh, I I experience... <laughs> and I'm Clay. And and we, we yeah. experience... You don't need to... You don't need to introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you two have... I hope that nobody's <laughs> listening to the second episode where we talk about oh, Moby Dick and Musical Reckoning oh, without listening to the previous one. We will still have you, uh, like, plug... We'll put in your plug okay. at the end regardless, um, but I, I, I hope at this point people know who you two are. Yeah, and readers, readers, so listeners, wow, wow. Listeners, please, if you're listening to this without having listened to the previous one, you're going to be so lost. Go back. Turn back. You need the background. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you like, really do. I normally... Here's the thing. I would not actually encourage people to necessarily view things this way for the episodes we recorded about the novel. Like, I do think that we built on our discussion, and so the things we were saying by the time we got to the end of the novel, you know, were drawing on stuff we'd been saying the whole time. So I'm not saying there was no purpose to listening to it from the beginning all the way through, but if someone had been like, when we were, I don't know, 20 episodes in. Ben Someone like, did. One of my cohort was like, hey, I started listening. You mentioned at the beginning it would be sort of a weird episode to jump in. And we were both like, oh, no, no, but you totally can. We're trying to be, we're trying to make that work. Yeah, like, the, because the thing is that Moby Dick is, Also hide around. <laughs> Moby Dick is a novel with a weird structure. And I think that it is in a strange sense possible to just kind of come in in the middle and like get something out of it. Um, <sighs> but this musical, on the other hand. I mean- You've made a big assumption here that they are getting something out of it. Period. I think we are all getting something out of this musical. Whether it's something we wanted to receive, I don't know. <sighs> okay, so, uh, yeah, we're talking today. Well, we're going to start with talking about part two of Moby Dick, a musical reckoning. So this is the second part of the first act called The Honor and Glory of Wailing. Um, and I guess this is basically the section that represents, like, the whole kind of middle section of Moby Dick, all of the actual, like, whaling content, all of the just, like, day-to-day life on the Pequod content. I guess? It's, w- the, um, go- in the words- Oh, I was gonna say that. In the words of the song, the famous long and boring uh. whaling chapters- He's yeah. so <laughs> Dave Malloy's weird embarrassment about enjoying Moby Dick. Yes. It's so frustrating. So, we're going to get into this. Something that Moby Dick is quite famous for as a novel is containing chapters which are not 
actually like not narrative. Actually, yeah, not actually like part of a novel, basically. I mean, they're part of a novel. They're just not narrative. There yeah. are sections where he talks about here is the you know here is whaling as I understand it. Here's its technologies. Here's its like knowledge of whale anatomy. Here's what you do to deal with this. And sometimes there'll be anecdotes from Ishmael's experiences, but a lot of the time it's literally just and here's a categorization system I thought of for whales, and people <laughs> have mixed reactions to the bit where Ishmael just tells you about whales for. A large number of pages. Yeah, like, it's... I actually think this is one of the things that is most interesting about Moby Dick on a structural level. Because, I mean, it is kind of like... Like, what I would compare it to is something like... uh, Like, the film F for Fake. Are either of you familiar with no. that film? No. So this is a film by Orson Welles in which he basically just kind of talks about the concept of, like, lying and forgery and stage magic for, like, about two hours. And in some sense, it is roughly speaking like a documentary about a famous art forger. But a lot of it is just, like, stuff that Orson Welles wanted to talk about, little images that he wanted to put on the screen, um... It's some, eclectic. Some parts of it are, like, actually fictional. Some parts of it are originally presented as factual, and then he reveals them to be lies. Anyway, the point that I'm making, it's not so much that, like, Moby Dick and F for Fake are, like, fundamentally similar. We're getting a lot of lost <laughs> baby vibes. Sure. But, <laughs> but what I mean is that they are formally experimental. They include a bunch of stuff that you would not really expect to be in a documentary film, or in a 19th century novel. And, like, I think it can be easy when you're reading Moby Dick to n not notice how, like, formally bizarre it is. Because... I think it's easy for you to not notice that. I, I think a lot <laughs> of people, that is their main impression of the book. Well, I, I guess what I mean, though, Ben, is that I think a lot of people, when they read Moby Dick, are like, wow, I guess this, like, weird boring, digressive inclusion of stuff that is not really a narrative is just what a weird <laughs> old book is like. And that's not the case. Charles Dickens is not like this. No. Um, the Brontes are not like this. Uh, this is Melville. <laughs> this is Melville doing some <laughs> Melville-ass shit. It's like, you might expect it out of Victor Hugo. Yeah, but... <laughs> but oh, yeah, very no, few yes, other people. Other people are... Yeah, yeah. So, so, and and I guess the comparison to F for Fake is meant to illustrate also how this is just like almost, um, like, I guess that there's almost like a kind of collage technique here of just like mm -hmm. sticking together things that don't have a structure that necessarily feels totally natural, um, or that is familiar maybe from other works. I, I, um, so it can be off-putting, but it's off-putting in a way that is, like, it would have been off-putting to people at the time. I think it was off-putting to people yeah. at the time. <laughs> it, the I, I do love the image of this being, like, a collage. Like, this is this is Melville's mood board for whaling that includes mm -hmm. all of the philosophical stuff, but yes! also the whales. <laughs> 100%. There are parts of Moby Dick that are just straight up a, a textual whaling mood board. Yeah. To, to briefly get on my hobby horse, I think it's very important that Ishmael is terrible at telling a story. Like, he's just, he's genuinely just bad at it. His digressions, his order of telling things, even when he 
tells a story about himself later telling a story to like a, a crowded bar it's very clear that everyone in the bar is constantly yelling at him get <laughs> on with it he even oh. includes that uh, okay we've had arguments about this my, my we shouldn't get into this that, again <laughs> my point being that i think that in fact, there could have been something very fun for Malloy to do with that, but he just didn't. Instead, he just didn't tell the story well, as opposed to sort of the artful inartfulness of Ishmael's uh, telling of the story and the way he intersects it. it. means you get all these interesting ideas and themes fitting together fascinatingly, and I just don't... Like, we brought it up. It's the this, this weird shame about liking Melville and thinking he's cool and ha feeling... Like, you have to do all the long, boring whaling chapters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, we are talking right now, basically, uh, I mean, we're talking about a general tendency that is in the show, but we are in particular talking about the first song of this section, Cytology. Um, which is, in some sense, adapting chapter 32 of Moby Dick, which is also titled Cytology. Um, but... What it is really doing is kind of uh, joking about how silly the chapter cytology is. I, I have an admission I'd like to make early on in this. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Go yeah. on. In this episode, which is uh, this was my favorite section this of the musical. This, this whole <laughs> this part two was the best. I will best absolutely part. agree with that. It was like the most visually dynamic, even if there's stuff about it that we have our own criticisms of and we'll mention them mm. kind of as we go on. But yeah. it was fun to it watch, was... which I cannot say about a lot of the musical. <laughs> the other parts. <laughs> that is, honestly, and... that's really great to hear. Yeah, you know, I will say if there's anything, like, if someone had told me, hey, Mark, there's a Moby Dick adaptation out there in which uh cytology and some of the other non-narrative parts of the book are some of the most like exciting and dynamic sections i'd be like holy shit really <laughs> show me so and a finger on the monkey's paw curled but i think danny and i can tell a bit about so this song was just you know, there's the whole long bit where we see all, where Ishmael lists every kind of whale mankind knows about, but yep, then, yep. <laughs> and some of these whales, I'm not sure, are separate whales from the other kinds of whales. <laughs> oh, they're not. Excellent. They're not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, pudding-headed whale sounds like just another whale that someone, that got hit in the head. <laughs> um, and it's yes. just, like, this is, is this the part where the pup, this is the part where the puppets start coming out, like... The, the yes. puppets? And yes. that's what okay, we're okay, tell us about the puppets. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. So, there's, first of all, this is when audience participation starts, and I just want to talk about how you all heard in the recording, there's a little break where people volunteer and come down to the mm -hmm. stage. They haven't yeah. yet come down or done that, but, you know, that it will would, come. Would... But yeah. the puppets were all made out of recycled, or... Yeah. They were yeah, made of recycled materials in a way that I will admit, I don't want to be mean to the people who made them, but they did look like children's, like, <laughs> middle school projects. Yeah. <laughs> like, but... 
I noticed, so that comes up in the playbill, uh, this this sort of uh, choice to use recycled material for the puppets. Um, I'll be honest, I interpreted that as like, oh, we reuse stuff from other theatrical productions and so on. It sounds like they just raided a landfill. It was like, it was like this sperm whale has Pringles can shards for teeth. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) And like, this one, and they were made of like, old... You know, old stop and shop bags and stuff. Like, and I, I will point out that there was one notable instance <laughs> of a very cute orca balloon. There was just like, I, there were like a couple balloons. Oh. But there was a balloon was there, good. and I remember when, uh, when this was still in like <sighs> rehearsals, my, uh, my ex texted me just like the I was, you know, doing some like stage stuff, and I saw I like the the balloon was situated right in front of me, and it was the happiest five seconds of my life, and I was like, yes, I agree with this. I think I think this is great, and I love that journey for you. <laughs> so it was it was delightful. It's yeah. like that's the word to encapsulate this part. It's yeah. just it's fucking delightful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that's lovely. I have to say, I think that the visual effect of like whale puppets made out of trash that look like a you know like a grade school um, project. Uh, I, that does sound kind of appealing to me and like fun mm-hmm. and funny and honestly a pretty good fit for Ishmael's whale divisions. As, yeah, especially especially if you got some like books and like school supplies in there because his whale divisions are into like. Uh, quartos and folios. He divides whales by size based on publishing sizes. Um, yes. Ishmael's, in, the, in the book. Ishmael's whale classification is like 100% you can imagine it as like a grade school like book report. <laughs> oh. um, so in a way I think this is like really appropriate. However I also think it's extremely funny that I do not think the things that we are getting aesthetically out of these puppets are what the Puppet designer and puppet director Eric F. Avery thought yeah. he was doing with these puppets. <laughs> um, oh. The statement, uh, the statement in the playbill about the puppets being made of trash is all about um, uh, recycling. It's all about waste and like landfills and attempting to reuse materials and attempt to reduce like material waste. Um, it's all environmentalists. And I cannot imagine a funnier place to put this argument than on a goddamn playbill. <laughs> a, a, I like, didn't a little think paper about program that. <laughs> that is printed by the thousands <laughs> and for the most part designed to be thrown <laughs> out. They're literally yeah. going to like put one. I, I don't I don't actually know exactly how they arrange this <laughs> in the theater, but a very common way to do something like this is to put one of these on every seat. Whether or not the person asked for it. Oh, yeah. I I had to ask Danny for their playbill because I got one. It is yeah, gone. I, I <laughs> kept it because yeah. I keep a lot of yep. things. And it, it was kind of wedged in between a bunch I... of books to keep it, like, you know, flat. And then Clay told me, like, yeah, I have mm-hmm. some friends who would like to see it because it's kind of a relic now. So it's like, no, I'm never throwing this out. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah. yeah no, you... Listen, yeah, those those whale puppets died. They really did. <laughs> yeah, and I I just I I think that it is I don't know. I think that a lot of how um either individuals or even like 
organizations such as the ART, uh, the way that individuals and uh, organizations like the ART think and talk about recycling and, and reusing is often very silly to me because, like, I just find it hard to believe that the use of, like, reused materials for puppets in this uh, production had very much impact on the total amount of waste mm-hmm. that was generated. Oh, for by sure, this it's production. like it's it's one of those classic corporation performative things. Like I I can't help but mm-hmm. think of you know like all of those ASPCA commercials or those like support this children's hospital commercials where it's like give us money and we'll give you this T-shirt and tote bag. Uh, just so you can show your support, where it's like, mm-hmm. well, you spent a lot of money just to have people be able to broadcast that they supported you, and instead of using that money for other things, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The, the term for that was originally virtue signaling, but then the phrase got picked up <laughs> by just awful people online and has it's completely like that, lost it's, all it's, meaning. Sorry, oh, sorry. Uh, but yeah, no, no, no. I was just saying that's there's the the term virtue signaling was originally created for literally having a tote bag that shows you support a good cause and that being the reason you supported the good cause. No, yeah. I I was going to say, it's like that meme of the mom <sighs> like holding a box of toys away from the child and on it it says virtue signaling. Like, you're not, you're not allowed to use this phrase anymore because <laughs> you've changed the meaning <sighs> of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> yeah. But, yeah, and there's also... You know, I think people think of uh, environmentalism recycling in a very personally moralistic way. Like, I am a good person because I recycle. And I don't think that that's inherently a bad impulse to have. It's just that you need to parlay that impulse into larger scale meaningful action. And I don't think, as as much as we are getting enjoyment out of this show, I don't think it had a meaningful impact mm-hmm. on environmentalism on a global mm-hmm. or a local or even a personal scale. Yeah, um, and and I, I'm just really struck also by, like, I think there probably are ways to make a theater production more sustainable and generate less material waste, mm-hmm. but I would imagine that those would have to be more permanent changes to the way that the, the production company operates, right? So, like, the idea of, like, reusing puppets from past productions came up, right? Mm-hmm. And... That is not what's happening here, understandably, because I assume they didn't have dozens of whale puppets (laughs) from previous productions. Um, But I think that, you know, I think there's a big, big difference between using, like, reclaimed materials for a specific production, but making puppets that you will still never use again, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Versus, like, I, you know, I think there are ways to structure large-scale projects that uh that create like i guess permanent resources that can be used over and over again but that's certainly not what this was yeah and even just the playbill thing i wouldn't say i'm sort of struck by there's the part in cytology that makes me um makes me make a face like I just ate one of those Warhead Sour Candies. Which is, Go on. Like, this could be an amazing song tying each type of whale to bigger oh. themes. God, determinism, ecology, capitalism, race, monomonism, and America. And it strikes me that you could probably do a version of that song that use, you know, 
if you had a strong, you know, if you decided to put such a strong thematic, like, backbone in the song, mm-hmm. you might not need puppets. Yeah, and I, I feel like... <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah! Oh, no. I, I feel like Go this on. is also something that could have been done, you know, very visually and musically and stuff, because I feel like... In a musical that's so fundamentally about wailing and stuff, this is kind of the point where you teach your audience devices of, like, the wailing that you're going to represent on stage. Mm-hmm. And so then when the wailing becomes pertinent and when, mm-hmm. like, we actually see Moby Dick or when all that stuff happens, we have, like, an, like an audio or visual cue of what each of these mm-hmm. things mean. So you're mm-hmm. actually exactly. teaching your audience how to, like, understand this musical. But they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Here yeah. you could have... Yeah, I, I don't think Malloy's interested in teaching the audience how to understand <laughs> his musical. Like, I I genuinely think that's one of his most fundamental failings here, from everything you've said, and from just uh, everything you've said about his past work and this work and the just the lyrics. It's not trying to make Moby Dick available to a theatergoer it's trying to put the bits he likes from Moby Dick on stage with no concern mm-hmm. for the audience. Mm-hmm. And this, oh. by the way, I would say that is uh, far less true of the novel. Oh, yeah, no. I, like... uh, Moby Dick as a novel totally teaches you how to understand enough about whaling so that you will understand what happens in the yeah, story. Yeah, that, that's part of the point of the whole long whaling like sections. And... You know, I've said that I think Ishmael is a bad storyteller. I think that's not at all true of Melville. Like, yeah, there, obviously, there are often times in in the novel where it will be like, there's actually there's a very funny moment where there have been like a couple of the non narrative chapters just explaining some details of whaling. Then there's a chapter with an actual scene of whaling, and then the next chapter, Ishmael is like, oh, by the way, here's another technical detail of whaling that I forgot to tell you about before that's important to the sort of dramatic arc of the scene I just related. So here's the extra thing that you also need to know. And that is an example of what Ben means when he says that Ishmael is a bad storyteller, (laughs) is that he won't give you all of the background information that you need to understand a dramatic moment before you get to that dramatic moment. And also that he, you know, will sort of circle around and return to his theme in in unclear ways. And he'll do all these things that are really fun to read and actually make it more engaging. But if you imagined him talking to you, he'd be unbearable. (laughs) Um, Or singing at you. But even though the structure of it is sometimes kind of funny and like doing this strange... um, Back and forth. Back and forth. This strange kind of uh, uh, dubious narrator thing. Like, not so much unreliable narrator as just, like, very present and strange narrator. Um, But it is fundamentally, as a book, really concerned with uh, getting you to understand this context because Melville knows that, you know, the vast majority of his His readers don't actually know anything about whaling because it's kind of this, like, weird alternate world and it's also one that is actually uh, waning by the time he's writing the book like it's um the the like uh height of whaling was actually the book is set like decades before it's written and the way during the height of the whaling industry and my impression is that whaling had in fact been not dying out but had changed a lot as an industry in the time since and so to some extent he's writing retrospectively he's describing this thing as much as we are now thinking about it retrospectively so it does have to explain all of these details and elements so that the reader can understand even in his era 
Which this musical it's is not. not good. It... <sighs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do think there's a there's a thing I want to draw attention to, which is that this um, we talked last episode last time about um, about how there's a lot of like impossibility of understanding and incommunicability and like the book is really concerned with what can't be spoken and this song has some of that but then immediately like goes back on it because it's like i don't know about whales i don't know about whales but implicitly you the modern day listener do know about whales you know why this whaling is funny it's that i'm wrong like i think that there's an element of this musical doesn't actually believe the whale is unknowable. This musical believes that Ishmael doesn't know about whales, and that's a very different sentence. And, like, I... Oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Like, Oh, no, I think I, no, no, I might be, like, changing the subject, so I'm going to let you finish your idea. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, I, I was basically... I'd said basically what I wanted to say. I just... I think that that whole thing about, like, you know, God, ecology, all these things that you could be bringing in... But, you know, uh, Ishmael, with some added, like, white male guilt here, you know, I wish these whales could swim in an ocean that's free of men like me, um, he's saying, I don't know, you know, I can't necessarily put this together, the system isn't perfected, and again, this is a place where Malloy steps into Ishmael's shoes and is like, I gave you Moby Dick, what more do you want? I'm not going to try and actually say anything about America. No, absolutely. And, like, that kind of, <sighs> it brings to one point I really wanted to draw attention to, um, specifically because of the genius mm. version, which pointed this out. So, uh, so in the version we listened to, there's a couple lines that aren't there, and they weren't there, I believe, when we mm. watched the musical. So it's some lines close to the beginning where it says, I am on my own, it's just me and my heart broke head, and the ocean is too deep for me to fathom, life is too big for me to bear, but who am I to compare my despair with the shaking of the sea? Who am I to give voice to voices I can never be? Which is incredibly interesting, because so that wasn't in our version, but when Dave <laughs> Malloy did it, uh, he he actually sang this song in a preview in, in uh, April of 2018, and so I specifically that line, who am I to give voice to voices I can never be, just screams at white guilt, because he is, it, I feel like that shows some awareness of, like, I am purposefully <laughs> imagining and casting these people as, you know, people I am not, so, like, people of color, possibly queer people, and it's, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. that you know, he, it's feeling guilty for doing that. And, you know, like, how can I take this position of, you know, saying stuff in voices I can never be? And yet he actively does that. Mm -hmm. Like, last time we talked about how he puts his own mentality yeah. into the mouths of people of color. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that um, it's very striking to me to... So, like... So, cytology is humorous. Yeah. In Moby Dick. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is something that people don't always understand because it's like, uh, again, because people come to it and they're like, oh, well, this sort of weird, boring, digressive talk about classifying whales that is also like extremely wrong about what whales are. I guess that's just what the 19th century was. But and and also, I guess this is like a genuine straightforward attempt to educate the reader on whales. This is this is science journalism. It's not, you know, uh it's not particularly characterful. And what it actually is, and I think this is like if you actually read the chapter, I think this is pretty inarguable. It is a big joke. 
It's a big joke on the entire concept that you could classify whales. Like, on some level, what Ishmael is arguing is there is no uh, kind of scientific system that you could apply to whales that would actually really tell you anything about them. And so the system I'm going to propose is basically something as absurd as just saying, uh, I guess I'll classify them by size? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that is literally his, his classification, and... Yeah, Ishmael is saying, um, I mean, he quotes, uh, who are you to draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Which I believe got dropped from the version we heard. No, on... no, it's, oh. yeah, he, well, okay, I don't, I don't remember precisely which version of the lyrics we got on the version that we listened to. Yes, in the version we listened to, I distinctly did not remember the phrase, draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, and I think we reacted to that. Well, okay, in, in the genius lyrics, it does have, yeah, but... who am I that I should try to hook Leviathan's nose? I don't remember what was in our version. I believe you if you say you didn't notice yeah, it. it... I no I I noticed its absence because we were reading the lyrics at that point from Genius and we noticed that that was gone mm-hmm. much like the bit about who am I to give voice to voices I can never be so there's a real uh, there's a lack of that that element which exists in the book which is all about I mean basically saying science is insufficient to understand the whale there's an epistemological like gap here that is sort of an underlying thing in cytology where the joke is not on ishmael the joke is on science the book is saying that science is incomplete that it is not this sort of master knowledge but rather that there is you know you could say it in very modern terms as the lived experience of whalers but like that's not really the core point. The core point is that the experience of an interaction with a whale will tell you that the whale is larger than what science thinks it is. Science cannot grasp this unknowable thing, or at least that the whale stands for that unknowable thing as Leviathan. And that's really not here in the song. Yeah, th- this song is transforming that sense of like, well, I can't ever really know the whale, I can't ever really speak to the whale, uh... It is transforming it into that kind of, like, white guilt (laughs) excuse, rather than, like, a more fundamental statement about, like, what... Human knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, human knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, um... I I, I think that, uh... Like... The... It's, it's... I don't know. It, It, it... I, I I would have loved to see I feel like this song is is actually really close to being what I would want it to be because having like a bunch of energy and having a bunch of like absurd imagery is like what I would want for a cytology chapter. It's just that it's it, there, there. <sighs> I don't know. It's it's. Th- this is not something where there's nothing there. It's just that it's like it's using the things that are there, and it's like almost reaching something I would like. But yeah, yeah. Sorry, Clay. I wonder if it would. The biggest problem here is that Ishmael isn't Ishmael. Yeah. That's definitely like present. the ba- like where the issue is like you can you know having Ishmael the contemporary. Of whalers, like, being like, so, I've been sitting around on this boat for a while, and these are my cohesive thoughts on how to classify whales, even though we all know that's absurd, compared to Ishmael, who is still just some grad student, <laughs> yeah. um, being like, hey, 
we all know, like, psst, come over here. We all know this part of the book is absurd because we believe in science. But uh, where it's kind of actively, it, like, it's fully contrary because changing who Ishmael is in that way from, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of silly, uh, or not silly, but like, this very specific narrative, like you said, like, I forgot the word weirdo. you used, but dubious narrator? like weirdo narrator, dubious narrator, to the most reliable narrator I can imagine because he's read the book. He's reading the <laughs> book. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. He's, uh, and he's also, he's you, he's you, audience. Mm-hmm. He has your thoughts, he has your experiences. He's really, he's making this big, unwieldy book that clearly you don't need to go read uh, into something that you can appreciate through the power of a Dave Malloy right. musical. I, I think it's another one of those situations where in trying to contemporize, is that a word? And trying to make certain elements contemporary. Okay. Contemporize? I love or... that. I, <laughs> I, I don't uh, know. So uh, in, in doing that, it kind of strips any original intended meaning of the text. Cause kind of like from what I'm getting and what you're saying. So he, Ishmael is making a point about sort of, you know, Science is something that, you know, in a way I might be contemporizing it myself as something that, you know, grows and changes and sometimes Mm -hmm. can't fully reflect what we know from experience and how there's sort of, there's room for science to change. And I feel like this sort of, in the musical, it's just like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is, you know, about fake science and we believe in science. And so it kind of, it's that funky thing where I feel like a lot of scientists and researchers now sort of push back against the idea of, you know, science is everything and like it knows everything. And it's like, no, it's a field that changes and we experiment and we theorize and hypothesize Mm -hmm. because there's stuff we don't know and we know that we don't know this. Yeah. And then I think for, um, for Moby Dick as a, as a book, I think it's very important also that there's, you know, a changing science, and Ishmael is kind of science skeptical. I don't know if Melville is the same degree of skeptical about science's claims, but Ishmael in general is sort of like not entirely sold on science's claims to like epistemological supremacy in the modern day. He likes to turn back to historical sources, biblical sources, uh, weird philosophy. He's really here for the humanities, (laughs) is our Ishmael. Yeah, something something that's interesting, this section is titled The Honor and Glory of Whaling. Um, But I think it only contains very brief actual allusions to the chapter titled The Honor and Glory of Whaling. Um... Which is a fascinating chapter because it is the one where he lists all the historical yeah, yeah, whalers, he, right? Well, yes, and by historical whalers, we mean both people who actually hunted whales, and he desperately tries to define uh, St. George, Hercules, and a variety of other uh, historical and mythological figures as being connected to whales in important ways. Because he wants to be clear that whalemen, the coolest. Just yeah. the coolest. <laughs> so, so the thing that's kind of funny about that chapter is that it shows you some sense of, like, how Ishmael conceives of history and that like he definitely believes that Hercules was a <laughs> real guy. Um, or at least that as much as we can t- usefully talk about uh, history, Hercules is worth talking about. Yeah. And, and that like uh, he, he is, he, one of the things he does in order to claim all of these like mythological heroes as whalers is that he uh, assumes that any like mythological monster must have been a kind of garbled description of some sort of real-world animal. And so 
mythological descriptions of dragons, he's like, well, obviously those have to be whales because there's no other animal that's that large. Or Um, like cool or impressive. Yes. Part of his argument is on some level that uh, the most impressive thing a person could do in the real world would be to kill a whale. So if we say that uh, St. George killed a dragon, it must really have been a whale because what else (laughs) could be that cool? Um, And (laughs) like this, that conception of history is... (laughs) <laughs> a bizarre one. <laughs> Hyper euhemerism. Yeah, and it's uh it's it's not there. Um No, it's it's just not. And like uh, I think the temptation for Mark and I throughout this section is going to be to just be like, but there's all this stuff that isn't there that was there and I, I we're we're gonna try and like re- yeah. pull that back, not do it quite so much, but you get Hopefully you get the sense of, like, the degree to which there's stuff here that is not being engaged with, in large part because of that ironic Malloy uh, mm-hmm. tone. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the distance from the character of Ishmael is a big part of it. Like, yeah. because there are just... Ishmael has these, like, silly ways of thinking about the world, and they are embarrassing to Dave Malloy, uh... And I don't think he wants to deal <laughs> with that Ishmael. Or at least he doesn't want to be identified with that Ishmael. Yeah. Yes. Like, I think he... I don't think it's so much that he's like, oh, I'm not willing to deal with it. Because he's perfectly happy to suggest that Ishmael is like... You know, that the Ishmael of uh, a bosom friend who's like, oh, I don't want to sleep with a cannibal. And that whole thing. That's certainly not an Ishmael that Dave Malloy wants to, like... Uh, is, wants to um identify with and that ishmael is kind of distanced from this narrating function but now that he's doing more narration he talks about how famously boring the chapters are and how his you know he's speaking for voices that he can never be and so on it's Mm -hmm. (sighs) malloy get it together (sighs) um i think i'm I've been accidentally sneaking ahead and looking at the stub. stub kills a whale because I'm so interested. I'm interested in it because, first of all, this is where audience participation oh, yeah. starts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Let's let's go straight to stub kills a whale because I want to hear about that audience participation. So, as I said last time, one thing you hear you hear in the recording during the like where we need some what's Volunteers. it called audience member. Some volunteers from the audience because we're all gonna like, but may, don't come if you are. If you get seasick in any way, like if you get prone seasick. to seasickness, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There's a there's a whole kind of like list of, of and, warnings. But I, I think this is in the break between set, um, part one yeah. and part two, right? Ishmael is like, mm-hmm. we're gonna need people to come up on stage if. You are prone to seasickness. This might not be the trip for you. If you have a drink at your table that will get cold while you're gone, this might not be the trip for you. He just, like, lists a bunch of warnings or whatever. Also, as, like, the audience participation actually starts, there's this, like, almost like a Disneyland sort of spiel playing from the speakers. Yeah, the Disneyland. Just like, like, please keep your arms, legs, and and whatever inside the vehicle at all times. Wow, it's a small, small (laughs) world of whales. Oh, well, well, so I was upset because I, going in on stage, I would have done that in a heartbeat, but I get really motion sick really easily. So I heard, you know, that, and I'm like, oh, okay, they're going to be like, you know, spinning Tossing me around. around. You know, like, you know, this is something that will make me seasick. I get seasick. It was 
the whole whaling section, everyone is on It's a Small World boats that are puttering around the stage at about, oh. like, a and, foot a second. It, like, it was so like, low. Because they, they stay the same speed the whole time because basically they come from under the stage. It's almost like they're on, like, little rails. And it's just these tiny little rowboat-type oh. things that are rolled oh. up and onto the stage. And then, like Clay said, they kind of just go around, like, one foot per second. In a little mm-hmm. circle. Yeah. And this is the whole, like, this is the choreography for the whaling thing, because all the whalers are on the tiny little, these are the whaling boats. Yeah. And it kind of limits this part, because, you know, there's no sense of, like, oh man, this whale boat might topple over, because they're saying it. But at the same time, no one has ever been in danger on the It's a Small World ride. Danny, do not correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong about this. I know that you would know. Um, one, of, one of my, like, uh, special interests is theme parks. So I, I, nice. <laughs> I know so I, much about I hear that. I hear Clay that. makes fun of me for it all the fucking time. Um, okay, you make fun of me for my It's, it's a mutual respect. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this, is, is this is friendship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we've, all, we've all got our weird shit that we're into. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome uh, to Higgledy Higgledy Whale Statements, a show all about Moby Dick. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're t- neither of these hosts are at all weird or have like odd obsessions. Now, please go listen to our backlog where we talk about Moby Dick for like multiple consecutive days if you add it all up. Mm-hmm. And oh god! But back to this, and the the people being told, you know, the people pulling, so to speak. Yeah. That's the audience. Most of these lines are being delivered at the people in the It's a Small World boats. Oh. they've now become the, you know, people with the worst job on Earth, which is not even killing the whale, just yeah. rowing the boat. <laughs> You're risking yes. death, Ishmael's and gone. also it's not fun. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Ishmael, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if Ishmael was in the boats. I think Ishmael oh, was in cool. the boats. He has to have um, been, like, in the audience rowing. Like, that's the whole thing Malloy's doing why, by having the audience be the people pulling the boats. It's it's further playing that, like, Ishmael represents the audience. Ishmael is... Mm-hmm. The audience are the whalers here. Ishmael is, like, the... Because he is, like, the lowest-ranked possible whaler. <laughs> he gets, like... Um, I think this showed up in an early spoken bit. They, like, they talk about his lay, which is the percentage of the profits that he's... Uh, entitled to and it's like one three hundredth on a whaleboat with 30 people on it so he has one tenth of a person if if it were shared equally which obviously it won't there's owners investors and so on mm-hmm. and meanwhile queequeg is immediately offered like a one twentieth lay or something Good thing about marriage. Uh, exactly <laughs> like it's straightforwardly there is this moment there where you're like oh oh yeah no Ishmael's gonna be fine. His boyfriend's gonna take care of him. Uh, he's he's gonna make a better profit off of this than his one three hundredth lay. So don't he, worry about that. He's a trophy that. husband. Oh. Uh, yes, because pe- because people are going to make so much profit off the voyage of the Pequod. Oh yeah, no. I mean, yeah. look, if Starbuck had his way, it would be a perfectly profitable whaling voyage, profitable, profitable whaling voyage. And uh, however, you know, um, in fact, it will fetch a great premium here. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Uh, but yeah, no, that's. But yeah, so small, small world boats going in a little circle. All the lines, like to the rowers, are being like said to the uh, audience. Are the audience like moving row rowing oars, or are they just sitting there? 
I, I, I also think they were, think they were just there. sitting there. Like, they're, they're given they stuff to do a little bit after. Like, and, and we'll get, we'll get to that. Yeah. But yeah, during. <laughs> when they, when they Yeah, they're all the sitting, sperm. they're sitting in a little oh, yes. drum circle. Uh, but that, that's a whole moment. But yeah, right now they're just kind of still spinning in little circles, just kind of sitting there in their little red ponchos and being absolutely delighted to be on stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also they're up, they're right up close to Stub. So this is also uh, a point when we get a bunch of, uh, Stub yeah. I love stub. <laughs> oh. yeah, so no, I, fun. I, I would love to hear all about how stub comes across in the musical because every time stub has come up, uh, those of you who've seen the musical just immediately go, oh, stub. Stub was the best part. Stub rules. And I'm just like, good. Good. I mean, Tell I me like- more. At least from my part, like, I feel like Clay's a lot better at kind of understanding the things as they were sung in the moment. My my ears aren't friends with my brain. I've said this a couple times. And so Stubb is only becoming yep, yep. extremely cool now in hindsight that I have, like, the lyrics in front of me. And it's like, oh, wow, Stubb. Stubb kind, oh. is kind of fucking sick. But in the moment, I was just like, that's just another another person on the whale boat. That is sure a person. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. I think... Yeah. The thing with Stubb is that one, Stubb has the most character in this, both because the actor does a great job of embodying this, like... Asshole. There's humor to it, but yeah. But also this, like, very prickly, like... The actor, who I believe uses she pronouns, is not very large. Mm -hmm. But, like... It feels like if you were to, you you could throw her at a whale and she'd stab it to death herself. <laughs> like there's yep. this, all this anger and violence in this tiny little like, or there's all this violence right there, and it's great. Yeah. And and then also it's fun because, like you're seeing these lines. A lot of them I gather are straight out of the um. Yeah. Like, I, I like the, like, pull my children, which is more funny because it's a bunch of, uh... A lot of these Audience lines get even members. more funny when it's not condescending to the, uh... When you're not, like, emasculating the actual whalers, but you're, like, being mean to a bunch of art patrons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is, that like, is amazing. This I, is not, it's this funny, is it's good. where, like, it's... Malloy's presumed audience actually makes it makes the lines work better because i mean because malloy, oh, yeah, malloy is great. speaking yeah. to rich yeah. art patrons yeah, no. who don't know anything about people of color or anything about working so now it's like oh come on pull my children it's like the, that's the only moment where that becomes extremely hilarious it was really yeah weird. yeah and then also just admittedly stub is standing at the prow of this tiny little whale boat most of the time which means stub gets to do things Stubb yeah. is, like, moving and dynamic and is also the most interesting person on stage because he's standing. I mean, Flask yeah. is also standing, but Flask is kind of just like, when do I get to kill the whale? I hate whales. I hate whales. <laughs> like, he's, like, <laughs> he's just kind of seething. They're both very scary, except Flask doesn't really seem to have any investment in what's going on other than the violence. So until, you know, until the whale shows up, um, Flask is just like, okay, you, you handle this stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, that that all tracks, and uh, this really is kind of Stubb's vibe in the book. Like, Stubb is an asshole in the book. Like, just hugely uh, sarcastic and condescending and constantly laughing at things, but is also willing to uh, take a certain amount of it himself. And his, like, uh, his patter to his rowers that we get in the book is one of my favorite just bits of dialogue, because it'll be this really great... Uh, um, alternation between like, and he's always talking in a pretty uh, low and friendly voice uh, with occasional shouts, being like, yeah, yeah, no, no, just easy, easy, just break your backs and burst your lungs, but easy, gentle, <laughs> don't be so startled, just fucking die to kill the whale. <laughs> and it's it's so good to hear yeah, that Stubb on stage has was, this energy. That was very much, there was a very strong, like, always loud, partially because this is theater. Right. Yeah, yeah. But like... Stubb was always excited. Um, also, mm. admittedly, made me want... I want to eat a whale steak so bad. This is the <laughs> lasting thing that this has done to me. Because the way that oh. Stubb was excited to eat whale steak was just yeah. like... It, it's, you know, you know, in like... You know how you reminisce about, like, children's cartoons? And for some reason, like, some rat putting... Ritz crackers and milk. Yes, just sound looked like the most delicious yeah. thing on yeah. earth. Yeah, it, that is whale is, steaks uh, and stubs and stub in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. like yeah. like it, or like Ghibli food. That is yeah. how whale yeah. steaks come off in this. Yeah. Even though like two songs from now they talk about how it's bad. I didn't care about that because Stubb convinced Same. me they're good. Because oh, Stubb was rules. so psyched for whale steak. <laughs> That's I love amazing. the direct undermining of its own attempts that this musical has made by making Stubb the most energetic thing on stage. <laughs> yeah. The fact that the entire song and the entire ethos of the musical is don't eat whales. Whaling is bad. You're just like, okay, but that whale steak was juicy. <laughs> God, that does rule. Um, oh, there's, have... a, there's a thing that I keep wanting to say because it feels to me like it expresses something i've been thinking about our recording but i know that it wouldn't make any sense to the two of you but now i feel like it will which is something amazing that Stubbs says in the book because he's so excited to eat whale meat at one point he's like kind of haranguing his the the like the cook and like telling him how he wants the whale cooked and the cook is like putting up with this uh yeah and his his kind of like sign off on this like obnoxious rant about the whale meat he wants to eat his sign off for that is whale balls for breakfast don't forget <sighs> and i just love that as like a listen tomorrow we are going to fucking like dine on whale we are going to be surrounded by whale uh <sighs> whale That's is so what's funny. in our future it's <laughs> Whales back on the menu, boys. Uh, but, yeah. God, I... On the one hand, I think we're really tending towards the second to number from now, which is uh, The Whale's yeah. a Dish, which sounds like a lot of fun, and it's a lot more making it, fun it of the whale fun facts. One. But oh, before God. that... Before uh, that... Yeah, are we ready? I mean, no, yeah. but we should go Let's on. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so the next number, or the next track... The next oh, event... It is called Fadala, and it is a stand-up routine. Oh, we it's should a, mention it. Is a it's a stand-up routine, stand routine, just in the middle of it. Oh, 
I, I do want to mention briefly that before this, there is the introduction of Fadala and Ahab's special crew for whaling. Oh, yeah, um, I guess that must have been uh, in dialogue at some point, right? Yeah, that would have been in, stu- uh, this would have been in Stub Kills a Whale, because it's right before they all lower to kill the whale. There's this, and I think it plays over while they're getting the audience up on stage, but I couldn't tell, cause, again, just hurt hearing it. They So first of all, gonna be frank, this is the part where the novel just goes, here's an Orientalism. Here's, like, a character who so represents this, the, like, you know, the mysterious East um, in certain ways that even the musical has their entrance be a little, like, pentatonic riff that you can hear repeating over the, like, chaos of the ship as the lowering is happening. And it's just like, don't Mm. do that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, the, the music, the music when, like, Fadala shows up is very, like, I, I, I don't know what the actual, like, I don't know what it is in a music theoretical sense, but, like, what it sounds like to me is, like, oh, this is the thing you would have in a cartoon from, like, the 50s through maybe the late 2000s to indicate that an Asian character mm. is appearing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not great. And we'll get into Fadala more when we get to, when we, in the Fadala number, but it's, uh, I do want to mention that there's a, uh, a thing that I don't think is visible in the stage version because, as we mentioned in the last recording, Ahab is no not really noticeably less mobile than the rest of the cast. And Part of the reason Ahab has this, like, secret crew of, like, uh, Filipino and wherever, and and in Fidal's case, Parsi, but he's also very strongly just generalized Orientalism, is cloaking Fidala in certain ways. Um, But the reason he has this special crew that is loyal only to Ahab is because, well, that's not entirely true, but it's because... Starbuck and the owners of the boat and the rest of the crew wouldn't let a man with a peg leg run a whale boat. It would be seen as suicidal. He can't whale. Nobody expects him to go out except maybe to hunt Moby Dick specifically. Nobody thinks he's going to be going on the water before they meet Moby Dick. So when he reveals that he has this secret whaling team that will lower with him nobody everyone's sort of shocked and confused and they can you know and he goes out whaling together and i'm really interested in how did ahab have one of these little like uh uh small world boats i don't remember matt fair enough yeah yeah he did did. okay okay i I get the sense I get the sense that sort of the the, the surprise of Fidala's appearance in the novel, where it's like, here's this guy who was on the ship the whole time, but he was hiding, and now he's here. (laughs) It is very silly to think about. And he's, like, weird, and he hangs out with Ahab, and, like, no one else really knows what to make of him, and Ahab has, like, brought him on board under false, or, or secretly for this weird reason. It didn't seem like any of that was present in the show. No. Like, he, I mean, he, he does kind of have that thing of, like, he kind of just shows up. Mm-hmm. There's a bit mm. of a riff, and you're like, and everyone turns, and there's a bit of a big, like, he, he, you obviously get that everyone on stage is surprised. Mm-hmm. Right. But it doesn't sound like it has a lot of impact. 
no, no, we didn't. It's because I feel like a lot of that is saved for, for Fadala. Yes. The number. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh, what, a, what weird decisions uh, went into this. So yeah, uh, Fadala the track is, um, we said before, it's a, it's a stand-up piece. Um, and, uh, okay, so look, what it basically is, is a... Uh, like out of character or, or like kind of semi out of character. That thing where the actor and the character and the playwright all meld and blur. And it's really hard to tell where anything is coming from is being hit incredibly hard in this piece where Fidala, who's got like a, a turban and an elaborate outfit. I understand that his costume is pretty elaborate, but he sort of just takes all of it off. You mentioned yeah yeah he does yeah the, yeah and yeah, he's yeah. dressed like he's in jeans another dude. basically like another yeah, yeah. A, another guy i it, he's kind of it sounds like in in the costuming he's kind of accessing the type of like just a just a modern day person that ishmael's mm-hmm. costuming yes. is kind of signaled it, it's exactly they they look like they both went to the same open mic night <laughs> um <laughs> so and and the the performance itself is essentially a long, rambling criticism of the portrayal of Fadala as a character in the book. In the book, but also a criticism, in some sense, of the portrayal of Fadala in this musical, or also kind of about, like, just a just a wide ranging criticism of a number of random things. <laughs> Yeah, it's... in the way that I guess stand up sometimes can be, right? Just a just an airing of the mm-hmm. speaker's grievances. Yeah, I I think that we should probably almost start with like what was this like in the theater before mm-hmm. getting into like the particular ideas being displayed because I think on some level the uh just the formal weirdness of it is is yeah. a lot. So, our guests, you'll have to be our experts on this. Lead on. So, basically, the Fidel section, like, it, I compare it to stand-up because he's kind of alone on stage. He kind of just gets that spotlight. I think, I, I'm trying to think if he gets a mic. He has, he has a glass of water a and a stool. They gave him a he stool. He has a glass of water and he a stool. Did. And it's like, I, I'm trying to remember like, if they gave him, like, an actual mic to be kind of carrying around as he's doing this. But I do, I do remember the stool and the water. And he does kind of command mm-hmm. the stage in a very stand-up-ish sort of way um does he take the turban off mm-hmm. he oh takes yeah all of his like accessories all right I, wait, I, yeah he, he is fully just yeah the thing says a tie-dye shirt and jeans and i think i remember that being it it's just a t-shirt and jeans mm-hmm. man that's such He's a fully statement. shed fadala as a character that's such a yeah. statement that you can't be a modern sarcastic atheist guy with a bunch of anti-racist critiques you can't be, uh, doing stand-up you can't be that guy and wear a turban mm-hmm. in this show oh there's <laughs> yeah as we'll see later yeah um and i think something i've been thinking about saying for like three days now about yep. fadala is it's hard because I don't know who yes, wrote this. Yes, that's that's the main yes. thing. Yes, like, oh we, my god. We were asking and ourselves I think... this like I think during like immediately after we were like, did he write this? Because there's a section in Fidala yeah. 
where he says uh, some he specifically says like I'm talk I mean actor me this and he says something about his background but yeah mm-hmm. continue clay sorry yeah. I kind of interrupted you yeah I, this and so I did a lot of research on the actor Eric Berryman <laughs> last night I'm so um, glad please go on and so there's a range of possibilities I think we're either de- you know it could be anything from you know in the classic Marx Brothers sense or whatever, it has, there's a block in the script that says Fadala improvises here. Sure. Or, like, Fadala does his stand-up here. Or yeah. it, Dave Malloy, the other end is Dave Malloy wrote all of this. Eric yeah. Berryman, fairly successful actor, has done some really cool stuff. He's been in Top Dog, Underdog, and a pretty, pretty good, like, acclaimed performance, which is a fairly famous play um been in a lot of theater does some like not quite in like indie tv stuff which i don't know but it's like you know he was in barry if any of you watched barry like which is you know it's kind of like prestige but the smaller prestige some of the more like Mm -hmm. prestige comedies that are and what i gather he is a comedian he does do comedy things i haven't seen any if he does do stand-up, he hasn't done it in a while, which would make sense if you, you know, get, like, Acting become a jobs. successful actor. Yeah. I would, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot lower barrier for entry for I can, or not lower barrier for entry, but a much less successful actor is still a more reliable source of employment than that mm. level of stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah. Um... And so, what I think I, from this, finding out, and his background, which is this, his amount of acting and stuff, I couldn't find out if, you know, I I did try to e-stock a little bit, but I couldn't find out Mm -hmm. if, you know, when he says, actor me, any of that is true, which is fine. Um, That's a little bit much. But I think my take is this was co-written. Yeah, because there's is... parts that I don't feel comfortable without strong evidence saying aren't um, aren't Eric Berry. Berryman, mm-hmm. but it's far too like deeply intertwined with themes that come up all the yeah. time in this. Yes, yes, absolutely. That um, especially like near the end, the burn everything. That yeah, is yeah. whale song. That's the exactly. whale song interludes. Yes. And so I think, and this is just, I wanted to set this up. I think at least my critical approach here is going to be kind of sharing the responsibility there. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. Kind of, especially because like, I mean, so, so like, like Clay said, some parts feel very Dave Malloy. Like I feel like the elaboration on like, uh, like Zoroastrian monotheistic religious stuff that he explains mm-hmm. in the background feels very like Malloy says Which, do this. I feel like he does improvise okay. around that. I believe because mm-hmm. the script only says written here only says uh, a group of Zoroastrian monotheistic. Eric Berryman specifies he I forget exactly his wording, but he says like super okay, cool okay. or something. Yeah, yes, yeah, he, he does say... He, talks about, he embellishes there. Yeah, he talks about some of the uh, Zoroastrian religious practices, like sky burial uh, via the Dachma, or, um, and stuff like that, which, like, I'm gonna be honest, I certainly don't think they're not cool. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Those yeah. are definitely... Oh, I'm not... 
interesting practices. Mm -hmm. And that also, my thing thought there is I think that, like I said, there, I think that he is allowed to improvise. I think that he is not improvising the whole thing, but part of the improvisation here is to make it that authentic stand-up, which stand-up cares so much about this manufactured yes. intimacy. Stand-up yeah. is very, in, very, or supposed to be very intimate. Um, also, this is... <laughs> also, like, that's what makes me think more of just the, the section immediately, you know, after the cultural background where, I mean, at least in the genius uh, lyrics we have, he says, in like, oh, I'm yeah. sure our beloved writer and director yeah, have thought yeah. painstakingly about all this aggressively diverse casting in an effort to, to what, guys, win some prizes? Outstanding wokeness from a white writer and director in the musical. I'm, like, 99% yeah. sure that Dave Molloy was just like, okay, in this part, just roast me. Just fucking roast me. I'm begging yeah. you. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I have a hard you... time to do this so exactly. that I can get away with this. Yeah, like, yes. something, when I was thinking about this, because I also had a similar thought process to what Clay was describing, where I was trying to kind of imagine, how was this written? And mm -hmm. I have a kind of conceptual idea of what, how this could have been written with kind of the maximum input from Berryman. Um, basically, uh, trying to believe in these critiques as much as possible right trying to say okay no 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 i don't think that when this piece like makes fun of dave malloy and like jokingly says he's trying to get woke points i'm trying to believe that's a real critique i'm trying to believe that's not just dave malloy talking mm -hmm. about himself mm -hmm. okay so my imaginary strongest case for this section is that like i don't know during uh during, like, early rehearsals, Berryman was like, hey, I feel really uncomfortable with my character. I feel like it's a pretty racist depiction, but I think we could maybe talk about that in the show and do something cool. And Molloy was like, all right, go for it. And then, you know, Berryman just wrote slash improvised this whole section. And, uh, you know, Molloy just gave him the stamp of approval and let him do it all on stage however he wanted. Even if that's true, and I don't really think it is, because that would actually be... I don't have any reason to believe that Berryman had that level of input on this section. There's mm -hmm. no, like, as you pointed out, he doesn't have, like, this very, he doesn't really have an, a super clear background in stand-up that would make me think mm -hmm. that that was, like, a likely thing to happen. And there's not any kind of, um, you know, they could have said something in the program. He could have said something in the section about how, like, by the way, I did write all this without input from Dave, you know, like... Very easy to imagine that mm -hmm. line being said in this. Yeah, and that I would have fit to say, perfectly. It would fit perfectly, and I think that actually saying that, like openly saying he didn't write this, I did, rather than you know joking about the writer, that would open up the possibility that if it turns out that wasn't true, and Berryman says it, say in an interview, that would be a shitstorm. Whereas here, I think it is entirely within the space of deniability, where like. I can't actually, I can fault the artistic content, but I can't actually say something unethical was done if it turns out Dave Malloy yeah. wrote this with Berryman's input. It's, if it was just Malloy and Berryman literally had just like said, sure, I'll say what I, I'm a professional, I'll say what you want me to say on stage, that would make me feel super weird about this. But the middle case is, which seems most plausible, it's perfectly ethically acceptable. I just don't think it's a good bit. Yeah, so, so the thing I was about to say is, yeah, the strong in in the strongest possible case where we imagine that Berryman had as much input as possible and Malloy had as little as possible to make the anti-racist critiques seem as legitimate as they could be, 
even in that case, Malloy is still employing Berryman. And however nice and accepting Malloy may have made it clear that he is, there's no way for an actor to literally have uh, no limits in terms mm-hmm. of what they can say to the person who wrote the musical they're performing in, right? Like, uh, Absolutely. There's no way to actually say, yes, you can criticize your boss however you want, and it's not a problem. Like, that's not mm-hmm. how, that's not how employment it, works. But it is a uh, conspicuous belief of a certain kind of American liberalism, that you can have this kind of internal critique, and that's all you need. That you can have a, an, a self-critiquing thing, and the fact that it's self-critiquing and ironic and self-aware means that it will necessarily fix its, its problems. It's the, like... Ryan Murphy, Joss Whedon mentality of self-critique in in place of actually improving the work you're doing. You're just pointing out the flaws in it Mm -hmm. and then believing that's kind of enough. It's it's just it's like listening to Sue Sylvester complain to like Mr. Shu that he raps too much while having him rap immediately in the next three episodes. (laughs) And it's yeah. I yeah. I wanna say Let's let's get into some of the uh, actual like, I statements. Think we've now established it's unclear who exactly we can blame for this. But I think at the end of the day, the good thing is, no matter who wrote this, <laughs> I don't think it's very good. No. Yeah. No, I don't no. think it's Actually, good. yeah. <laughs> like, let me talk for one thing about um, the uh, this speeches, this this bits. Um, perspective on, like, why Fidala's depiction is racist, right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, it, it, you know, it starts out being like, oh, like, Fidala is, is, uh, the devil himself. He's not a man. He's a, he's mystic bullshit. He's not a fleshed out character. And that is basically true. Um, I, like, th- there are quibbles with that, Ben, but you can't disagree he's that- He's certainly not a fully fleshed out character, as is true of many characters in this novel okay uh but like figure yes um but uh the okay so the 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 statement of this piece seems to more or less be like well fidala is actually a parsi and that is this particular uh zoroastrian group uh who who really um, you know, really exist. Yeah, it's a particular ethno-religious group with a particular history. Yes, and and there's a little bit of description of the history in this. It, it is totally true that this is a people who were, like, uh, you know, the, the Arab conquest. This is one of the people whom the Arab conquest conquered. Um, and then there's this weird move where it goes from talking about this real ethnic ethno-religious group who were colonized by Arab Muslims in the ninth century. And then it's kind of moving to the idea of just talking about Islamophobia with this sort of totally smooth transition where in the previous paragraph, because we're talking about the ninth century, Arab Muslims are actually like doing conquest. They're, it's a whole thing. And, and you now, know, there's the line about history, it's fucked up all over. And it's like, yeah, that's that's true. But America, he says, is a special kind of fucked up. And I, now we can move to post-9-11 <laughs> America. Yes, and now we're talking, and now there's this suggestion, this claim, uh, 
you'd think the Middle Eastern character would be Muslim. I mean, we've got all the most persecuted groups from America's long and fucked up history in here, which is like almost saying, Herman Melville, why didn't you include a Muslim in your story? And it's like, because it was the 19th century. Yeah. The concept of what Islam means in America in 1850 was completely different. Yeah. The, um, the actual context for, uh, Sort of an is a a state with state uh, a state so with state religious Islam and America being uh, in con like conflict. The only context for that would be the Barbary state piracy scandal, and it's like I know the that diplomacy one. <laughs> that was done between uh, yes. between Jefferson and uh, the Barbary states, which is specifically a thing that every American atheist knows about because Jefferson states in a letter to the Barbary, um, basically to the, uh, the government that he's speaking to who is worried that they're, that America won't honor its treaties because they are Muslim because America is a Christian nation. He states, we are not a Christian nation. We are a nation primarily composed of Christians, but we guarantee freedom of religion. We are not going to make decisions on the basis of the religious, like, dedication of the other state. We are going to honor this because as a nation state, that is the most, that is the thing we should be doing. It's, again, American atheists are very aware of this particular conflict because of its specific statement by a major founding figure that America is not a fundamentally Christian state as a government, which is such a wild little interconnection, but it also means that one runs into this specific notion of, yeah, in the 19th century, American attitudes towards Islam were very different from what they look like in the late 20th century and especially post 9-11 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's and also the idea that Melville is stalking this boat with people because they are persecuted is fucking bonkers. Yeah, the the people of color on the Pequod are being oppressed and exploited. Yeah, they are mm-hmm. on it's, the Pequod. The people of color on the Pequod are representative of the like cultures and populations that. Melville sees as part of the whaling industry of the American, like, East Coast. These, they're not there because he wants to represent an abstracted America. They're there to represent a concrete American, like, industry that has these kinds of people It feels like something else is just a consequence of Malloy's interpretation of being on the whaling, like, ship as a sense of, like, freedom. You go there to be free rather than kind of what it seems to be in the novel, which is just, like, this is kind of where you go to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ishmael chooses that. A lot yeah. of people didn't. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a sense of, like, there is a freedom in being a whaler because they're, like, the roughest tumble and most disreputable ships, uh, except for perhaps pirates. So the kind of freedom is a freedom that is cognate with death. You're leaving good society, you're leaving social norms, but not, A, not entirely. It's still, you know, Starbuck is there representing Protestant work ethic and social norms and the part of this industry that, like, uphold, that provides the uh, economic engine of uh, New England. These. This is not a totally free space, but there is a sense that it's so disreputable and so, uh, you know, 
in some sense, so multicultural and so many different kinds of people are there that it is vital and energized despite being closer to death. In fact, part of that energy is that it's in the face of you know, near certain death by whale. Uh, Ishmael has a line that, uh, you know, when you light your lamps, be aware that not a, you know, a barrel of oil was brought back, but a drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Which is very, very different from the idea of, like, escaping society to the sea, because you're still within its bounds in a very intense way. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about the way that this uh, bit talks about religion yeah yeah that seems like a good (laughs) place to go there's a there's a little section uh where um the i and i assume this uh, this has to be from berryman's biography because if it is not holy shit that's like jaw-droppingly offensive yeah to put these words (laughs) in his mouth if it's not true um but he he says this stuff about like i was raised muslim uh, but then I went to college and, uh, I read some books and started smoking weed and I became an atheist and decided all religions are evil, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, everything. And then he just kind of like lists some things that people do because of their religion that he thinks are bad, which is wild because he starts with saying that circumcision is bad and then also male list- circumcision yes, i male- feel we need to mention oh god no yeah. you're right that's a very good point he's criticizing specifically male circumcision and then criticize the other things he lists as bad things that people do because of religion are um conversion therapy uh stoning untouchables quote hiding their women which is the phrase hiding their women is an incredibly orientalist idea yeah, it's like uh, look, we can't we we cannot start digging into this. I think the best way to describe it is just this is incredibly 2006 atheism. And you know what? Mm-hmm. Based on his biography, I'm sure he comes by it honestly. I can't just instantly say, "Oh, I don't get where that's coming from." I was also in a, you know, um, you know, 2006 atheist phase at one point. But it's just wild to try and juxtapose that with a lot of the, like, uh, cultural relativist uh, approaches that the rest of the musical takes. That's one reason Mm -hmm. why I think this is more likely to be coming from Berryman, because it genuinely takes a side. It's not doing the Malloy thing of, like, kind of ambiguously, guiltily shuffling around these things. No, this is just stating a position, and it's a position I think has the nuance of, like, a brick, but it's a position. Yeah, like, the Mm -hmm. thing that's wild to me about this, I feel like it's incredibly hard to square this with um, a bosom friend. Oh, you can't. You just straight up can't. Because, like, this is a musical where, in one song, we're saying, uh... Endo-necro-cannibalism for religious purposes. Is totally fine. But circumcising male infants, or, you know, assigned male at birth infants, which, to be clear, obviously, there are cultural discussions to have around that, but... For the most part, I you think... You don't want to put it in the same conversation as stoning people or uh, conversion, conversion therapy. therapy. Right, mm-hmm. like, the, I, the kind of person who will say on the internet that the, like, circumcision of assigned male at birth babies is, a is like, a, a racial crime, that kind of person is a fucking idiot, and I think we all know that. <sighs> and yeah. so this yeah. is, yeah, it's completely incoherent with the rest of the show, um... 
Yeah, like, again, I genuinely, on some level, I think I appreciate it. I appreciate that this genuinely feels like a voice other than Malloy's coming Mm -hmm. through when he's made such a show of it. And that also leads us into the fact that the rest of this piece doesn't feel like the same voice. Like, it... it, Yeah, there is... Oh, no, I was gonna... First of all, I'm I, I want at some point, Danny, I need you to you remember the people in front of us better than I remember yeah, the people in front I, of us. I, I do have um, a whole kind of thought process about this particular number, just because it, it's very interesting to me. So okay. We we were sitting uh, vaguely close to the back and in front of us was a row of I wanna say just like, you know, college freshmen. It was like five of them, mm-hmm. all of them were white, they were young looking, um, and basically throughout this whole thing, they were like cheering and going like, woo, and like snapping. And it was just like very, they were, they were, were snapping, they weren't clapping, lot. they were snapping. And just like going really, really okay. wild about all of these things that this man was saying. And it was just, it made me like viscerally uncomfortable because it's just, it's, it just like oozes that white guilt of like, oh, this person from a marginalized group is saying something and we're supporting him so much. And it just, it, it's so, it, it's, perform- yeah. it was aggressively performative and it, it's sort of, it's that, you know, mm-hmm. it's why I don't hesitate at like thinking that Dave Malloy had some hand in writing this whole stand-up bit because it's that like white self-flagellation where you kind of you hear a person of color Mm -hmm. say things vaguely against you but then also saying things you vaguely agree with but you think are unpopular opinions and then you just put that on a pedestal Mm. because it's not you saying it and because of you know quote unquote the twitter sphere or whatever you think it's unacceptable for yourself to say it so if you're someone who it is acceptable it's acceptable for them to be saying it then you're just like you go bananas over it yeah, yeah. it's it's laundering opinions through the yeah, actor it, it's, in yeah. a way that yeah, is because it's using yeah. the casting this is just like the best example of the casting being used for someone else's purposes like these these actors these actors of color were not cast for their talent they weren't cast for what they stand for artistically they were cast because they are effective mouthpieces for dave malloy because i'm like 100 percent sure if all of these actors were white then we'd be hearing a lot more about how fucked up this musical is and it just it doesn't it doesn't change yep. like what the mm-hmm. mouthpiece is it, it just which is why i guess i mean as as much as mm-hmm. i uh disagree with with you know a lot of this really anti-religious rant mm-hmm. which is like you know if for me it's interesting like yeah, i yeah. i was raised catholic my family's catholic but my parents weren't that catholic which means mm-hmm. i got introduced to religion a little late and i i'm personally i am not mm-hmm. like an obnoxious atheist i just i don't like believing in a god so i don't but it, i don't disrespect religion yeah, yeah. in this way i don't like see it as below me you know so it's like i this was yeah. me when i was like 11 and discovering this like you said it's like 2008 uh 2006 mm. Yeah. Uh, atheism. So it's like at, at least I appreciate that it it shows how voices of color are not a monolith, which I feel is very difficult for a lot of people to yeah. kind of understand because the the common refrain is you know listen mm-hmm. to voices of color, listen to our stories, listen to what we have to say, and then people just kind of take one voice of color that they believe in and take that as the mm-hmm. law and apply it to everyone else, which you know obviously gets complicated because there's so many people in the world, and I feel like. Specifically with my, like, Hispanic, Mexican, like, background, it's just odd because 
like Hispanicness is very complicated and I don't see, you know, when we talk about Hispanicness in like a lot of media in the US, it doesn't reflect my lived experience. Like I I've only lived in the US for 5 years. I've spent most of my life in Latin America. I've lived in Mexico in two different places in Mexico for like 6 years. So that's it, it's very interesting for mm-hmm. me to see. So this is at least I can appreciate it being like, you know, a lot of people of color, myself included, don't agree with a good chunk of this. But I I like that it's being said because at least people are exposed to like, hey, we don't all believe in the same thing and we can actively like violently yeah. disagree with each other. So at, at least I get yeah. Yeah. that here. And like I said, I don't agree with what he's saying. But like, and and we're going to talk about this eventually when we get to the, the cynicism of the last bit, especially of the, ugh, anyway, fuck religion, fuck mm. America, fuck y'all. It's, you know, I... It's something that fits with conveniently fits with Malloy's narrative, but it's also it makes it awkward because I feel like in a lot of cynical moments, at least in my family, we've gotten kind of close to that. Just like just like fuck it. Just like literally please stop, burn it down. I can't take it anymore. But that's not it's not a permanent mindset. We don't exist with that in our daily lives. It's like when things are just really weirdly shit that we're like, God, just like let me mm-hmm. let me be, please. But it's not we don't exist in that state, and so I don't appreciate Malloy attributing sort of that mentality into the overall cynicism of his whole piece, which is just, fuck America, let the ship sink, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And this does, since we had the mention of, like, you'd think there'd be Muslims on the ship, it's kind of weird that, as we mentioned previously with quote-unquote Spanish gold, um... It's kind of weird that there's never a, you'd think there'd be like, a, you know, the Hispanic representation on this ship, but I guess there wasn't an angle like Fidala to do that from. Like, Yeah, that's, it's true. That Especially in 2019, Jesus. Yeah, like, it, and it's not as though, you know, um, uh, I would not say that it is done in a, like, <laughs> it, it is done in a racist way, just like everything else in the book. Um, but I believe that there are Latin American sailors on the Pequod. Oh, yeah, and, I mean, there's literally a Basque, there's a Basque sailor as well, there's, like, the Pequod's list of sailors in the book is just literally a long list of what is an island where Melville met a sailor from there at some point. (laughs) Yes. Um. Like, there's, there are characters who the, there's whole sections of the book that are written as, like, a play like so there's name of sailor and then there's an entire section in the party after the quarter deck that is just sailor from like say tahiti and then says a thing that is kind of stereotypical of tahiti about how you know they they miss their island or they're you know celebrating now and there's like you know irish sailors and there's a manx sailor who's a weirdly big deal because a manxman is the correct kind of white to have weird witchy <laughs> knowledge like there's a whole thing going on in the book that is it just has nothing to do with malloy's like racial project it has nothing to do with modern american liberalism except in the way that like a dinosaur has to do with a bird um it's Mm -hmm. a it's an it's a line of descent kind of thing rather than no this is actually the same and that makes some of these adaptations so weird and this mm, if people don't mind i'd love to go in briefly into what fidala is in the book yeah i'm very curious about that i wanted to bring that up in part because i want to talk about how um, like I mentioned Orientalism before, yeah, yeah. and I think that this one thing that's really bizarre to me about this stand-up routine is that it feels like, um, 
It feels like this stand-up routine is positioning Berryman as a black man, as the kind of figure of a racialized person who therefore can speak to all types of racism and in some sense all types of, like, prejudice. Um, And this is like a move that I, like... Racism the idea that anti-blackness is the, like, center of racism in the U.S. is not uncommon. Yeah, and, and like, I think on some level it is basically true that the way that the U.S., like, kind of system of racism functions is kind of oriented around anti-blackness. At the same time, Orientalism is a different structure that operates right. in different ways. And that isn't actually, like, like the ways that... Uh, a orientalist racism functions are different from the ways that an anti-black yeah, and, racism and functions. even even just straightforwardly while anti-asian racism now often draws on orientalism it's not the exact same thing a lot of the tropes of orientalism and the way it operates are very different from how modern anti-asian racism functions and the idea that fadala who is the sort of arch orientalist figure in moby dick is to be reduced to sort of a modern racism and a figure for two shallow characters and not representative, just feels... It feels like you could have done without that. And the thing is, so Fadala, to, to briefly go into it, yes, is a Parsi, and his religion is actually extremely important because two things. One, Orientalism always involves attributing a certain kind of timelessness, both ancient and unchanging, to the East, which means everything East of Europe, broadly speaking, and it can be applied mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways. Fidala stands in for ancient wisdom because the thing is, he and Ahab are maybe the two people on the Pequod who really understand what Ahab is doing, sort of theologically and con like conceptually. Ahab is setting out to fight God, as seen through Moby Dick, and Fadala sees that that is the case and is there to to be the like representative and the side of God. Fadala is referred to as the devil by characters like Stubb and Flask, who are you know, white New Englanders, but what he actually represents is an alliance with the world and with, like, uh, you know, sort of uh, religion, but in a way that is not the conventional religion of New England, but an awareness of the, like, great imminent power behind the world. He is setting Ahab on his course to face Moby Dick and be destroyed as, to some extent, a religious devotion to what Ahab thinks Moby Dick represents and has raised his banner in rebellion against. If Ahab is satanic, is devilish, is baptizing his harpoon in the name of the devil, then Fidala is there to represent God and to stand as Ahab's, like, opposite. And so this character who at first seems to be Ahab's, like, lieutenant and second-in-command and his, like, secret source of wisdom is slowly revealed to be the opposite pole of, like, a magnetic field, a religious field that Ahab variously rises up over and is standing against and is generally... There's a weird power dynamic between them that drives a lot of Ahab's weirdest moments. And that is completely absent mm -hmm. in this musical. Oh, yeah. It's just not there. Um... I have yeah. <laughs> not a disagreement, but I have something that this is making me think of. Mm -hmm. He does do that. Eric Berryman oh. does do that if Dave Malloy is Ahab. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I 
I'm dying. Accidentally, this is actually oh, brilliant. No. <laughs> You're so right, though. Especially, oh, okay, here's God. the thing. Because, okay, in the novel, right. Uh, yeah, so as Ben said, Fadala is kind of on the side of whatever divine or or potentially devilish force that Moby Dick kind of represents. And I think mm-hmm. the kind of... The question of what is there really is a huge one. And I will point out, Berryman says, it's just a whale, which is like the, frankly, yeah. the high school level analysis of Moby Dick is to say, Ahab's crazy, it's just a whale. And this musical kind of seems to agree a lot of the time rather than make, and doesn't even make it like, like, you can come to that conclusion after everything, but it's a complicated and ambiguous conclusion rather than a slam dunk. And this, yeah, I... Oh, okay, so, so, okay, Fadala and Ahab, they're, they're opposed, but Fadala is, like, supporting Ahab in what he's doing, and, and my interpretation, Ben's interpretation, this is not ever, like, stated super clearly in the book, but what I believe to be the sort of logical conclusion that you come to from their opposition and the fact that at the same time Fadala is like supporting Ahab's quest Mm -hmm. is that, you know, like Ben said, uh, Fadala wants Ahab to face Moby Dick and be destroyed by him because in some sense Fadala is on Moby Dick's side, or at least Fadala is opposed to Ahab and he wants Ahab to, he's giving Ahab enough rope to hang himself. Very, very literally. Yes. The you will die by hemp. And Ahab goes, Ha, ah, there's no one who could hang me on the ocean. And the answer is that the line from the from the harpoon will drag him off. So if that's the case, then what we're saying is that in this stand-up portion, David Berryman, or, or uh, it's not David Berryman, Jesus, Eric Berryman. I'm confusing mm-hmm. him with Dave Malloy. Berryman is, in that sense, giving Dave Malloy the opportunity to completely like, fuck up. Yeah, to to, the, the uh, to show himself. his whole ass. Yeah, face down the white whale that is I don't know this musical or like an attempt to reckon with Moby Dick and just fail utterly. Wow. Which is like it, it's it's like <laughs> okay, honestly, it's too good. And I don't believe it was on purpose. I think this is just like a like a convenient no, in hindsight no, 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 no. and actually like <laughs> shockingly brilliant in hindsight thing. But like yes. I, it, it's yeah, too good I... for Dave Lloyd to have even assumed that this was a possible interpretation of it. Or if he did, it was like, oh, that's kind yeah. of it. I'll leave it in, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, do I, I don't think that's what's going on because I don't think Dave mm-hmm. Malloy conceives of himself as Ahab even a little. He's no. so obviously no. identifies with Ishmael. He yeah. should be. He, yeah, he I doesn't realize that... what an Ahab he is. Listen, or, Orson I mean... Welles cast himself as Ahab and the director, and it's great. Ishmael mm-hmm. as the director it's, doesn't work. I think just Dave Malloy is falling into that pitfall of what character you are identifying is as the writer and lyricist. Because mm-hmm. like in like I said, like in Great Comet, he originated Pierre. In this one, I I think in the original performance, mm-hmm. he originated Ishmael. Um, and it's just like that. That gives mm-hmm. you the identifying character, the character you as the audience are supposed to see as kind of the center of everything that is happening, which for better or for worse is almost always the case with a writer, director, lyricist, actor who kind of mm-hmm. does the work, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> God, that's, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, sh- I'm in shock. I'm going to be dealing with that for a bit. I do think this is a great point to point out that uh, Herman Melville's bust is it apparently is. on stage. They mention oh, yeah, that the in time. lyrics the whole time. God. And, like, 
it's there just so that they can point at it and be like, if you have problems with this, it's his yeah. fault. He calls it's him more, Hermie. Does call him her. Yeah, I... Yeah. I think one of the lines in this that I find most annoying is, like, the last two lines. You know, uh, the, the stand-up routine is wrapping up, and he's kind of joking about, like, all right, it's about time for me to get off stage. And he says, I'll just try to sit back and be vaguely menacing. Just like you like me, right, Hermie? Right, Hermie? And it's this, like... he He's, like, being mean to Melville for, like writing Fidala as a as a racial caricature who doesn't get a lot mm-hmm. to do other than be menacing and I'm like Herman Melville did so much with Fidala like it was very racist but yeah, the problem yeah. with Fidala is not that there's too little going on there <laughs> yeah there's oh, um, yeah there's that is the problem with Degoo, for the record. Yes, there oh. are other characters in the novel where I would say, yeah, this character's essentially vacant. There's nothing there but a racial caricature. If you were to put this character in a musical, you would basically just have to... Invent a personality. Yeah, you would you would have to, like, hollow out whatever was there in the first place and just or replace it with it. something like, else. The thing, or, yeah. My, my problem with the hollowing out thing is that here we see Fidala vacated to make a different kind of point... And the result is that you just vacated a character who did have a lot of weird shit going on. And without that weird shit, you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fidala is a shallow character who doesn't really need to exist in the story, but is like an iconic part of the event. So we're going to have a Fidala, but he's going to be standing back and be vaguely menacing. And we'll hang a link shade on it. And we'll talk about it, but we won't do anything besides mm-hmm. this Fidala piece It's, with it's like Fidala. what happened with Queequeg. It feels yeah. like the same... Sorry. I was, oh my god! You, you me. No, 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 perfect. It's exactly what happened to he- Queequeg, and I think it's what happens yeah. to Ishmael. Is like you hollow out a character, and then you need to fill them with something else. But the problem is that, like, you know, you're not going to fill them with better stuff because you didn't write this book. Yeah, and and also because the character is all the character is compelling in the first place to you, the writer. The reason you feel you need to fill them with something rather than mm-hmm. just leave them empty is because they served a purpose of some kind. Like you can't yeah. just you could just toss Fidala out. Most adaptations of Moby Dick do not have a Fidala, but partially I think out of a desire to autoflagellate, but also out of a desire to have this thing that you know, seems to be necessary in the book where there's this prophecy and there's this dynamic between uh, Ahab and Fadala and the rest of the crew. We have the Fadala, but Fadala's been, there's, a melon baller has been taken to the inside of the book and Fadala's been fully, like, scooped out. And instead of, you know, I don't know, trying to fill it up with something else, possibly failing, we just have this sort of empty space and the actor steps out of the empty space and goes, yeah, that's all there is there. Yeah, it's, it's just a, another classic Malloy misunderstanding of the sort of intention behind the text. And, like, you know, dis- despite the failings mm-hmm. of the era or whatever, there was an attempt to, like, there was, this person serves a purpose in this narrative. And it, it, it they, yeah. they do something critical. And just, you can't see the purpose behind this character if it's not spouting, you know, 2019 Twitter clapbacks. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's Oof. kind of wild to me about this is like so so this this section it has this like big like 2006 atheist critique of religion that I mentioned. Uh that also yeah. kind of ties into the criticism of Fidala as a character, you know? He talks about mm-hmm. the character mystic bullshit, being yeah. mystic bullshit. Yeah. Um 
Which is fascinating to me because of the way that the rest of the show treats religion and mysticism. On the one hand, I would say that religion, references to God... Theology. Theology, uh, mysticism. There's a lot of that in the rest of the show. Uh, you know, the it opens with a sermon saying we are all in the hands of God. Um, there's a lot of God talk in the pip section. Um, oh boy, is there. And like, in terms of the kind of uh, mysticism that Fadala represents, um, you know, he does do that in the show. He, he does the prophecy. Um, and some of the things that Ahab says that are that are mystical or theological, the, the pasteboard masks stuff. Yeah, that's but I, here. I think a lot of that is just copied and pasted. Well, that's what I'm kind of saying, is that um, religion and God and mysticism make their way from Moby Dick into this musical. But the most coherent statement that I think is ever actually made about these things is in this bit where the statement that's being made is basically those things are stupid and they make people do evil things. And that's all they are. I'm about to have a conniption because I just realized that in a play, Dave Malloy did nothing about a character having an extended bit about how all reality is fake and underneath there is, like, a real yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's a play. masks is literally it's a, a theatrical metaphor. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I, I, every so often I... <laughs> go wait i could write this better <laughs> yeah yeah you totally could <laughs> you could because you'd be starting from at least zero and dave malloy is tunneling it's, down it's because like, i yeah. feel it's it's the it's the fundamental failure I, I think of a lot of works that are trying to be self-aware in the 20 in the 2010s 2020s sense where, you know, you, you fundamentally don't buy into what the source material was attempting to do. Mm. Like, that that's why I feel like a lot of, like, yeah. oh, satire, whatever, kind of falls flat. Because it's like, oh, whoops, what if, what if Captain America was a Nazi? That'd be fucked up, right? And it's just, like, there's no further analysis into, like, what that means or what the character means, etc. I, I don't want to use Captain mm -hmm. America, but that's, like, the first one that kind of came up. But, like, no, I... Yeah, it's a... We don't have to uh, fully support every version of Captain America that's ever existed to say that what if Captain America was a Nazi is uh, yeah. shallow. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's why I feel yeah. like this musical doesn't work oh. because he doesn't appreciate what is there. I, I feel like at most things, like, this has some fun wailing stuff and Ishmael is kind of relatable. And, and that's that's kind of it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's also that he loves the language. And, like, this is something that I he do does. find sympathetic in Dave Malloy is that he's clearly in love with the language of Moby Dick because it is a verbally pyrotechnic yeah. work. It is just fantastically written on that level texturally. And I think that a failing Malloy falls into that a lot of, I think, people who like Moby Dick can fall into is, I love the language. I just wish all the content were different. Yeah. Like, I love what he, I love the words he wrote. I just wish that he hadn't been trying to communicate the ideas he was trying to communicate with them. Yeah. And it doesn't work. It, you, you can't really separate that out in that way. Or if you do, you'd be writing things in the style of, or like, you know, I've mentioned the possibility of like a really wild adaptation that's like, you know, going way further in terms of changing things, in terms of playing with it, where it's intentionally making the words mean different things than what they meant originally, not in this sort of uh, kind of under the table cut and paste, oh, we've moved this bit to here and so on, but in like a really clear and obvious, 
we're changing what it means when he says, call me Ishmael. We're changing what it means when he says this, that, or the other thing. That's just me quote tweeting Moby Dick at sea whenever they use the word queer. And exactly. Being like, and it's me. like, I, it, a lot of it, I, I keep thinking about something that Clay said way at the beginning of our discussion, which was that, uh, yeah. He that Malloy doesn't do a good job of convincing us sort of that that this matters. Like, why should we why we should be sitting here yeah, for 27 yeah. hours watching this musical? Because, like, he doesn't tell us that it matters. <laughs> Clearly, he doesn't think that it matters. He doesn't think that the like mystic shit, quote unquote, matters. He doesn't think that this journey is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. All he kind of what you're saying, what he seems to enjoy is the language and how he says all of these things. And like that language is pyrotechnic and dynamic and beautiful. And that's all we should really be here for. And I, I just think that makes for a shitty-ass yeah. adaptation of a book that, you know, has so much to it. Yeah, no, I, I basically agree. It's, uh... And then there's the fact that he's bringing in his own things that are really completely out of left field for the book. And this is, I think, a good segue to that last bit, the, I want to see everything burn, let the dolphins take over, mm-hmm. you know, let mankind just be done, annihilate, ocean. Uh, and, like, there's, first of all, come on, Dave. But secondly, this, like, this extinctionism, we talked about a bit before, now F- the Fadala monologue, uh, Berryman's monologue, is wrapping up with this, as you say, this totally on the head, I think Clay mentioned this, totally hitting the nail on the head, like, wraps directly into what's going to be ultimately the theme of the play as a whole, the musical as a whole. The way everything is going to fit together is going to be constantly driven by this sense of, like, Gaian annihilationism, which is itself a weird and kind of religious way of thinking about what's going on right now. But it's one that is appealing to a certain, say, liberal American sensibility that doesn't see a way out and is sort of like, what if we could just be done with all of this and let it let it go and let let the environment take back over let nature heal <laughs> hashtag we are the virus <laughs> exactly yeah Except about a year early. early yeah the idea of what this the idea of what this show would have been if it had come a year later and like come out or, or like if significant chunks of it had been written post-covid if it had been performed post-covid is bizarre to think about because in some ways it would not be different at all <laughs> And in some ways, it would be completely different. It's, and, and, I don't think, I, I, yeah. I, well, and it's just, because when you think about the ways in which it would be different, it's just, there's so many new levels of obnoxiousness that could have been layered onto this. Um, there's also a, there's a whole plague ship section in Moby Dick that doesn't show it up at all in the show, which I think is fine. I don't think they needed to include the plague ship to make the narrative go. But they would have if it were <laughs> Yeah, and... Yeah, yeah. And also in this last bit, uh, and I I do think we should roll on to uh, Mm -hmm. something a lot more fun, which is uh, the, um, he ends by saying, and now there's going to be some kind of vaudeville number. And then we roll into Stubb going, I want a whale steak. (laughs) And we get the number. Stubb wants a whale steak. Uh, And honestly, this was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. The whale's dish, you mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, is everyone... Dish, yeah. I just want to double check. Is everyone good moving on to the whale's yep. dish? Because we're, mm-hmm. we've, we've, we're yep. done with uh, Fadala. Okay, great. I don't think <laughs> we'll ever really be done with Fadala in our darkest moments, but yeah. for now... Can't we just now... get beyond Thunderdome? <laughs> that is such a deep cut. That, that's an MST3K <laughs> deep cut. You know I love it, but I'm calling you out for this. Be kind to our listeners and to our guests. <laughs> I'm not allowed to make these references, so you're not. 
sorry. <laughs> Anyways, whale steak. The whale's a dish. This, um, hard to say it other than this was an unequivocally fun, like, watching this, kind of just so unequivocally fun. fun. There was a whole, yeah. they had a, they had prop whales, yeah. right? Like, they were, oh my god, chopping stuff, they were doing butchery on stage. Oh, it that was rules. a blast. That were they rules. getting, cool. were they getting, were they getting, like, fake blood on the audience oh, yeah. members who were there? I Yes! Oh, oh that was, rules it was, so it was much. Violent and... And this was like, the it, premiere, it, right? These were audience members in suits. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, I, yes. Not me, I was in my uh, college Oh, yeah, no, you made a good decision. <laughs> but it was, it was a... Ble- also, admittedly, it got me... It felt more brutal than killing oh, yeah. the whale. It kind yeah. of did a better job of getting across, like... Oh, yeah, this is a, like, yeah, we just killed a massive, beautiful creature than hunting the whale itself did. Yeah, the disassembly, it was very bloody, a lot bloodier than hunting the whale was. Yeah, there's, there's, sorry, go on. It was very just, also admittedly, Stubb sings a lot of it. And and Stubb is the most dynamic character, (laughs) or Stubb is just a blast to watch. And Stubb isn't just excited for the meat, but is, like, excited. You know, this is where you're like, oh, wow, yeah, killing a whale is a big deal. Good job, yeah, guys. Yeah. Or, yeah, not no, good just... job. <laughs> Stubb, Stubb got a whale and is being like, yeah, it's my whale, so I get to eat it, and I get to have it how I want. Uh, yeah, no, this is basically straight out of the book, um, and... There's a reference here to, like, let's talk about where the whale's neck is for a curiously long time. And that actually felt like a cute reference to, like, mm-hmm. the extended discussion of whale anatomy in the book. Because it was like, you know, there's going to be a lot of it. We're going to take that off screen. We recognize that's not musical uh, content. Mm-hmm. But it's a funny thing to think about. And it is. Like, there's a whole bit about how do you behead a whale? Where is its neck? It doesn't really have a neck. Um, yeah, this kind of <laughs> comic goriness, this yeah. actually feels very accurate to me, to oh, the yeah. descriptions of, like... Disassembling a whale. Yeah, whale butchery that are in the book. Like, And it almost does fit in a certain way. Like, your description of what the scene of whaling was like before is definitely disappointing. But the thing you mentioned about how, like, this was much bloodier, yeah. that actually kind of fits to me because it's like... Yeah, when they're fighting, the when they're, like, hunting the whales, it's this... Epic uh, battle. Yeah, it's this huge battle, and it's it's uh, it's total chaos for the people in the boats, right? And so, like, there is going to be this part of it... they don't move at about a foot a second, <laughs> slowly in circles? <laughs> so there's going to be this part at, like, the eye of the storm, where somebody is, like, personally... Or not the eye of the storm, because it's not, it's not calm, but at the center of this activity, where, say, Stubb is personally lancing the whale, and, like, great gouts of gore are coming out, but there's also just, like, the churning white water all around, people mm-hmm. are falling out of the boats, like, the whale line is flying all over the place, whereas when you're butchering the whale, it's also a bit of a chaotic process, but it's much more, like... Methodical? Yeah, this is, like, rather than being a total chaos where no one knows what's going on, this is the total chaos of, like, all right, boys, we practice this. Take it from the top. Start peeling the skin off this animal so that, or not the skin, stupid thing that goes into that, but start peeling a, a layer of blubber. blubber off this animal so that, like, there's a description at one point of, like, after they're done with this, they have to squeegee all the blood and, like, oil off the deck of the ship. 
yeah, there's there's just so much that goes into taking apart a whale, and a friend, you know, the book gets across that you spend more time arms deep in a whale carcass, taking bits out of it and putting them into the furnace and so on, than you do actually out in a whale boat, because, I mean, not always. There are times when you'll be out in the whale boat, like, overnight, because you were catching whales around sundown, but you're going to spend a lot of time just taking the whale apart and processing it and turning it into oil. And it seems like the musical actually goes into Mm -hmm. that. And I also, you know, again, this, this piece really quite remarkably good for this musical in part because there's even this bit about like the whale as a dish is huge and exceedingly rich and just too weird for most people and that's talking about the book that's talking about the novel that's like saying yeah this novel is long and it contains a ton of whale butchery and it's weird and rich and this is why it's fun and why some people like it and why you might want to try it out through that metaphor and that just seems like that came across to me i don't know if that's like comes across in the musical itself but it just felt like this had a sense of fun about the endeavor of the only time Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i admittedly and admittedly yeah it was i had fun it was i can't remember the exact thing but i it it was just also, you had good moments where, like, for once, I feel like Ishmael was, you know, I, I like the bit. I don't like the, like, let's go into it for a curiously long time, mm-hmm. stuff like that necessarily. But I love the, like, I use it as bookmarks for my whale books. Yeah. That yep. was one of the more, like, oh, I actually like Ishmael now. Because yeah. that's kind of a charming, like, you know, it feels like a look at this character who is this, like, weird kind of charming whale misanthrope yeah like, yeah no he, like, he totally it's is so nice of whales to give me bookmarks <laughs> to let me better read my whale books it, like, it yep, really yep, and like yep. I, I guess i do just have uh, to say the actor playing ishmael like he was he was generally so charming like uh, even though i i don't like a lot of the musical he was just a oh, delight yeah. to see all the time like i cannot understate mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. like perfect he was I, for for being there <laughs> I yeah, frankly yeah. wish he was. I he wish played he Ishmael. had. Like, <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish he'd been cast as Ishmael because I think he'd been he'd be really good at pulling off the like. He if he'd done the same thing but just not been self-referential and sort mm. of self-effacing, self-deprecating. Oh, yeah, I, it, he, he would have oh, been a really oh, good Ishmael. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I believe that. Oh, oh no, it no, just no, like Sue, immediately go. after the cute whale books line, there's just like a whole section that's just like exceedingly self-referential where it's like I Yeah, I, I, I stuff about whale yeah, facts. Yeah, it's like for unnecessary whale facts and Herman is better writer than a scientist and also them seeing the bust cuz like I do forget that the bust is kind of pushed to the side but it's there. Yeah. I think there are like two things on set the whole time which is the bust and then there's a bell which they use primarily like during mm-hmm the big big whale hunt close to the end and also when they see other ships and then mm-hmm. also the what we talked about when they talked about the white whale pip has this line that's like man white man whale white whale if anyone just didn't want a direct comparison yeah. of white supremacy and whiteness <laughs> with the whale pip just kind of hands it to you on a silver platter so it... yeah yep yeah yep. and uh, god i so i've mentioned that i think that the books like 
complicated and satirical relationship to science and like the can science understand the whale this musical just fucking posts one of those uh signs in its yard that says in this musical we believe science Mm -hmm. is real (laughs) which Mm -hmm. like that that very vacuous like the, the terminology is great there we believe science is real not we believe science says we need to do something about global warming not we believe science says x y or z no we believe science is real in this totally vacated sense we believe in the thing that we structure our society on as a knowledge creating endeavor is quote unquote real and it's just the the epitome of that particular side of american liberalism where there's this dedication to the idea that science supports our beliefs especially since the bush administration science is on our side but what that is what its complications are maybe what the limits of that are when we should be thinking about things in certain different ways or what science sciences are applicable None of that is included in that statement because it's much more about stating a sort of unequivocal, thoughtless agreement with a hypothetical, you know, abstract science. And that's one place where I think the book is going to be completely incomprehensible to someone who's holding that position because the book is very much trying to say, hey, you know, the way we understand and get knowledge it's complicated. It's weird. It's it's in some ways deeply flawed and not in a way that's like a modern STS criticism of the modern science and technology like sphere but rather just holy shit the world is huge and mysterious and hard to get a hold of and the Mm -hmm. idea that we know what whales are up to in the deeps is kidding ourselves whereas this musical really wants us to believe that no we totally know what whales are we totally are in tune with them and if we Mm -hmm. can have the right kind of environmentalism and quasi-spiritualism we can like engage deeply with whale song like a communication yeah something uh, this this thing about how herman melville got whale facts wrong uh this thing that ishmael thinks is the skin of the whale is incorrect actually blubber is the skin of the whale this no, is... no no it's the thing he the thing he calls the skin of the skin is really the skin according to modern science oh right is, it's the other way and around blubber is not skin. my bad it's, yeah okay. it doesn't matter well the point being yeah okay the current 21st century understanding of whale skin is different than the understanding of whale skin that Melville slash Ishmael writes in Moby Dick. Ha ha. But, um, like, the... This is a critique that often comes up with Moby Dick, and I think we talked about this slightly with the previous section, where it's like, people... Or or we talked about this with cytology, but not in depth. People look at things in the novel, and they're like, wow... This statement about whale science is inaccurate from a modern standpoint. I guess Melville was just... Ignorant. Stupid, yeah. And that analysis is frustrating because it lumps together very different types of, like, claims about whales that are made in the book. So, like, there's the things about, like, oh, classifying whales by size, and that's the only meaningful whale classification you could make. And then there's things like this, what is, what part of the whale is its skin? In the first case, that's like a very purposeful sort of joke. It's a way of like responding to contemporary scientific debates about like animal classification and Mm -hmm. basically saying like, all that stuff, it's nonsense. I disagree with like science. I disagree with biology. I think that classifying species of whales is basically not a human endeavor you can do. So looking at that and being like, wow, you were wrong about science is like, 
yeah, he was he was being wrong about science. Like, on purpose, guys. And then the whale skin thing is a totally different matter, where nobody knew in 1850 exactly how, like, whale skin anatomy worked. Yeah. In, in the kinds of ways that we know today. Like, people knew what blubber was, because they were doing this industrial activity with it. Um, but a question like, well, technically speaking, which organs of a whale's anatomy are, are we most, going to consider skin yeah which ones are most precisely analogous to like the human epidermis that was a matter of open study <laughs> and so the fact mm-hmm. that like melville's call on that question is different from the modern call is a very different like that's not purposeful because the information didn't yet exist and the way that the way that Moby Dick relates to, on the one hand, things where just, like, there wasn't really an answer, and so the claims that Ishmael makes in the book are kind of as good an attempt as anyone can make, versus the things where there is a scientific idea, and Ishmael is purposefully swimming upstream against it. Like, those are different things, and to this musical, they're just the same, and they're just Herman Melville being wrong. Yeah, I mean, I... I think I, I classify and, and categorize the different kinds of, like, interactions with science in Moby Dick slightly differently than you do, but in either case, there's a lot going on there. There's an, an elaborate system of ideas being put forward, sometimes jokingly, sometimes as Ishmael is wont to do, kind of clumsily, but the ideas present are much more about knowledge and what can be spoken and what can be understood ironically, the kind of things that are going to get, uh, that are going to come up in our next number, uh, but, you know, the idea of communicability, but this musical doesn't have that um, line, and frankly, uh, there was something that you said last time, uh, Clay, which is the, uh, and I've, something I've heard before, which is the idea that in a musical, when you, when your emotions are too great to be communicated through speaking, you sing, and then when your emotions are too great to be communicated through singing, you dance, and that that even just at it on its face is a little bit about communicability, about what can mm-hmm. be spoken, what can be communicated. This musical could have done so fucking much with the nature of what can be spoken in Moby Dick, what can be communicated, and like song and dance and musical tradition. And it's just not there, as far as I can tell, even a little. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, like, I, uh, sorry? It's like, yeah. It's like what I was saying with Cetology, where it's like, it ends up being this kind of wet blanket of a song because mm-hmm. you're just kind of copying out this listing of things. And then you say, well, we could have, like, made all these different kinds of whales synecdoche for other things, but I guess Man. not. Where it's like, wouldn't it be more, you know, going into that theme of communicability, what if it, you know, it's like, okay, from a modern perspective, the best way we can get this across is like, this is what these whales mean, I guess. Like, I, mm-hmm. I almost feel like it'd be more value. A lot of these times, you could kind of have, I'm imagining a version of this play where when you can't explain something in words, you sing. And when you can't explain something in song, you dance. Yeah, yeah. I think right? it's, like, it's not doing the thing that oh, musicals there's... do. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it looks like in a musical, but it's actually an amazing replica. <laughs> Not a musical, but amazing it looks simulation like a musical, of musical, but it's actually uh. your weird liberal uncle's t- Twitter. I was going to say Tumblr, but he wouldn't have Tumblr. <laughs> That's your cousin's Tumblr. Uh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um. All right. Shall we move on to? Yeah, let's. A squeeze of the hand. Moving on from something that really fun. You know, Stubb wants a whale steak, and thank you, Stubb, for bringing us this musical number. I salute you. And now we get a squeeze of the hand, and I'll be honest. I have no idea if this is a fun song or not. It seems like the audience participation and, like, what's going on on stage with the squeezing of the sperm would be so fundamental to making this song good or bad. I think it was fun for them on the stage. It, oh. Like, it, it, you know, it, it's when... It, it was kind of... I think you hear a lot of laughter in the recording, and a lot of that is nervous... Both because the song is very, like, wink-wink, nudge-nudge homoerotic mm-hmm. in a very specific way. Yeah. Um, and in kind of a way that I... Even kind of upsets me because it's sort of... It's, it's very much skirting that line of, like... Are we being kind of homophobic by laughing yeah. at, like... You know, you know, the kind of the line where it switches between, you know, laughing at how, like, laughing at, yeah, like, it is kind of funny that part of the process is squeezing stuff called sperm. Yeah, and, like, I yeah. I will and, sort but, of say this, and you feel free to, like, cut it out, or feel free to cut out my saying we should cut it out, but, like, that's kind of specifically the reason why I didn't want to go on stage, because of this sort of, like, I'd heard about mm-hmm. this section kind of, like, as an advanced sort of trigger warning from my ex, just because this was kind of a thing. It's that direct, you know, this, it, it's it's not really yeah. sperm, and they vaguely say that, but it's like, you know, but we're calling it that because we want to make the stubble entendre. And, like, in this whole thing, like, they're just kind of sitting around mm-hmm. in that little drum circle holding hands, and it's like, and just kind of, like, rocking yeah. back yeah. and forth, and it just, it's it's very tactile, and it's very content to be that it's it's emphatically supposed to be just about this one joke that they're uh you know, pun intended squeezing out for like as much as Squeezing, they can, yeah you know? yeah so i do want to i guess okay i do want to ask a little bit about the the kind of literally what they were doing on stage mm-hmm. they had some kind of yep liquid yeah, they had a white, a white viscous liquid that everyone was squishing yep. on, like a tarp. They on were all tarp. sitting on a tarp, and someone dumped a bunch of, like, goop. Very good sperm, um, like, you know, saying that was a fairly accurate facsimile of semen. And, yeah, cool. And I assume wow. whale sperm. But like, it was named that because it looked like it, and it got all weird yeah. and stringy. Like, so yeah, I figured that. But yeah, yeah, and this... it would, it's them <sighs> squeezing it, and then everyone holds hands and rocks. Like, it's very much like a, it's camp, a camp song. song. Yeah, yeah. No. pun intended. Yes, <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, yep. But <laughs> so yeah, I something oh. we should probably make clear. Um, I, that it sound. I think you two probably understand this, but just to be completely explicit about it mm-hmm. the pun is totally present mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. novel yeah because like this is just like the the reason that spermaceti the like white gooey stuff that's in the head of a sperm whale is called that is because people literally thought it was whale ejaculate for a long time because they would like recover this white gooey stuff from whale corpses but they wouldn't actually 
well corpse would be so deteriorated they couldn't actually tell where it came from or even finding it in the skull there was no reason to believe whales weren't just extremely weirdly built yeah like yeah. it took a while to determine that this probably wasn't in any way connected to whale reproduction um and so the name was understood by the time melville was writing and by the time i think of most whaling in the american market um it was understood not to be literally sperm, but it was still named spermaceti. It was still called a sperm whale. And so that... And it still looked like cum, and everyone <laughs> knew that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this was definitely present. And in the book, Ishmael does have a quasi-religious, definitely a little bit sexual, like, uh, emotional sort of feeling of brotherhood and closeness from sitting with his hands in the bath of oily goo, getting extremely well moisturized, squeezing sperm, and it's a chant, and he's sitting with like Queequeg and his buddies, and the homoeroticism is present in the book, and frankly, that's something that seems to be a bit off about this presentation, the musical, is that they seem to think they're introducing homoeroticism into this scene when it just was there. <laughs> yeah. In the book. I, I, I think it's, like, very strange that, like, this was not mentioned in that list of warnings about what you should know when before yep. getting on stage. Like, the wow, list of warnings does not right. say... For, I mean, first of all, it doesn't actually say anything about literally, like, you're going to get fluid on your hands. That might have been a thing people might have wanted yeah, to know about. Yeah. But also, it certainly doesn't say, if you would feel uncomfortable participating in a metaphorical public circle jerk then maybe this yeah, is not like the trick I was, for you i was know? given that warning and separately wow. yeah which is just entirely yeah. fucked yeah, up wow. and yeah I, no you're right i, I mean I, I wasn't even thinking of that i feel like this is i feel like this comes into the kind of implicit oh, yeah. homophobia that clay suggested because mm -hmm. it's like if you actually believed that as i do that the squeeze of the hand section is in some ways, like, a really beautiful depiction of Ishmael's, like, fundamentally homoerotic relationship to the other right. sailors on the pet quad. And I don't just mean that in the sense of, like, oh, yeah, he's gay, he has a sexual attraction. But I literally mean it in the, the kind of theoretical sense of homoerotic, that he has a, a passionate longing for other men. And it is also completely tied up in his religious beliefs about, like, brotherhood of man. And so for Ishmael, there is this total continuity between the work of whaling and Christian brotherly love and, you know, implicitly some kind of, like, male-male sexual contact. If you only think of, like, male-male sexual contact or the metaphor of, of homosexual sex as a big joke then you don't necessarily feel like you need to warn people that they're going to go participate in something that is basically that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not understanding this as actually being the, like, totally earnest, like, religio-erotic experience that I think it kind of should be. And in that way, it's, like, not allowing the audience to really experience it fully either. Mm -hmm. Or choose not to experience it fully. If yeah. that full experience well, sounds like a bit much. Yeah. The uh, uh, one. No, oh, sorry. Go on. I say the that that was. I think half of the nervous laughter was because this song is yeah. kind of a joke. Fully. Like, mm -hmm. but also it's because it was we. It was 
upsettingly yeah. intimate. And you kind yeah, of felt yeah. weird for the people on stage. You're like, wow, I... This is I, a... I guess you've you, had a sexual you experience up with the cast yeah. now. Yeah, yeah like... It makes me think of, like, like Rocky Horror, you know? Where, like, you'll get up mm, on oh, stage yeah. and everyone will mock you for being a virgin. But, like, people going into Rocky Horror know that it's going to be this kind of, like participatory, sexually aggressive experience. And, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not you think that's a good thing, whether or not you feel like Rocky Horror, like, really sure, warns sure. people about that. There are debates there. But, like, this show certainly didn't present itself as doing anything like that yeah, from the outset. Yeah. This also, I just got to say, this idea that's expressed in this song, in the lyrics, in the way it's sung, of, like, uh... Ishmael, I wish we all could be more open. I wish we all could be more true. And with a squeeze of the hand, I could melt into you with Queequeg. It's like, it's saying, oh, they're together. But they've been married for months now when this uh, this happens. And the idea that, like, I wish we could be more open and true, that, like, there's a love that cannot speak its name. I think that's an interesting concept in the context of Moby Dick. I've, in fact, referenced it because the idea of the incommunicability of this kind of, you know, uh, male-male desire is an important part of the incommunicability of things in Moby Dick especially connected to the whole Hawthorne business. But in this case, it's being turned into this, like, oh, I'm expressing the fact that I would like to sleep with Queequeg, you know, but I can only do it by, like, longing at you over the sperm. And it's like, that's really missing a lot of what's going on here in terms of the actual dynamics of this relationship. And it's missing the dynamics of this, you know, as Mark said, metaphorical spiritual circle jerk. And the way it sort of functions. Another thing is that there's a line that's missing from here that is in the book, which is the idea that he imagines that all the angels in heaven in the oneness of God sit with their hands in a bucket of spermaceti. And, like, it's a go- it's an intentionally goofy <laughs> image because Ishmael's a goofy guy. But it's this—there's this religious idea that it's—that goes— you know, does not unsexual but isn't fundamentally about sexuality alone— in his image of why sperm and squeezing sperm has this, like, ameliorating thing, meaning. And so there's this idea, even, that you're now removing from male-male erotic longing, this idea of brotherhood and connection and oneness and unity that is now becoming just these two want to melt into each other, but they can only do it through this, like, uh, through this metaphor and so on, rather than, you know... Ishmael literally wants to dissolve into the entirety of the universe in a pantheistic right. orgasm, which is what he wants at, like, all times because it's a form of suicide and a form of sex yeah. and a and, form and of Yeah, and I love. think it's sort of like a... on Just the the jokification of Ishmael's relationship with Queequeg, like, from mm-hmm. like Queequeg's very introduction and up until now, it's sort of like, I yeah, feel like yeah. as a... Like, me being a non-cis, non-straight person it's sort of it's what i hear a lot what i would hear a lot about in certain english classes that i had uh where it's it's the willful misinterpretation of what a queer reading quote unquote is supposed to be a lot of people just take it as like i think these two Mm. people should kiss and kind of having that exist as an entirely separate thing from the original intention of the Mm -hmm. novel and it's you know what what i'm getting here is like there is very much 
there is a closeness and intimacy between these two characters that is kind of just turned into a joke and what if, am I right? Like, they wouldn't actually do this in the novel because that was the old times and people weren't as smart then. Yeah. Where it's very much not yeah. the case. And so that just minim- further minimizes these two characters and their importance to each other and thus their importance to the overall narrative and what Ishmael is doing at all on the ship. Yeah, 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 no, I, I basically agree. I think that the idea that a queer reading of Moby Dick is one in which you imagine Ishmael and Queequeg as lovers is like, okay, but they already are. You have now reduced the amount of elaborate queer symbolism that exists yes, exactly. in this book. You've yes. made it smaller. You've, like, like, and to be clear, this is this podcast ships uh, Queequeg and Ishmael. That's just straightforwardly a position we take. That's... But that's the beginning. That's the first step. Yeah, as far as the stupid queer shit that I say about this show, or not the show, this book, I mean, there there are things that I've said to Ben, or that I've, like, t- said to friends privately that I would never record on this podcast because they're so fucking stupid, but I do wholeheartedly believe some of my stupid queer opinions about this book. Like... <sighs> There, there are whole. I support you. <laughs> there are whole vistas you could get into if you wanted to do like far out queer readings of Moby Dick. Uh, that something I've said on the podcast before is that I think there is a depth of weird trans stuff you can read into Ahab if you want to. Um, Probably no, not musical Ahab though. Definitely not. Not this. Not this Ahab. No. no. Um, but. Uh, but there's a lot going on there. It's it is fascinating. We've discussed it on the podcast. We've discussed it, you know, off podcast. It's uh, there's just a lot of really cool stuff there. And this isn't that that style of reading and that approach isn't even my main like way of ha- doing like theory and stuff. It's a thing I've got some degree of experience with. Frankly, mostly from being friends with Mark and from a few courses I've taken in grad school. But there's, even to me, there's such a wealth of possibilities here that just focusing on shipping Queequeg and Ishmael and saying, or even any other two members of the cast and saying, ah, this is the queer read of Moby Dick is, again, it's taken something huge and weird and complex and intellectual and taken a small real thing out of it exactly. and said this is yeah. the whole thing. Did anyone else have more to say about a squeeze of the hand or maybe about like queerness and how this show relates to it <sighs> I, I think i was done yeah yeah okay. i think i just yeah I, 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 just... I wish i'd read the book here instead yeah. of seeing this yeah no that's very that's very fair i i mean we recommend <laughs> it uh and i i i am still extremely surprised that Dave Malloy isn't very, like, loudly non-straight online given what he wrote and did here and felt like he could write and do here. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope I wouldn't create something like this, but I definitely would not have the guts to create something like this. Yeah, you know what's guts wild? negative. <laughs> One thing that's wild about this is, like, a squeeze of the hand is totally something you could have cut from the novel. Like, I think it's a very interesting chapter, but as far as its relevant, as far as its plot relevance, even its centrality to, like, processing whales. Yeah. Like, something that, this is a super, super minor detail, so I don't say this to be like, ah, the musical got it wrong, but this whole sperm squeezing thing, it's not actually something they have to do with spermaceti every time. In this particular case, for whatever 
it's explained in the book. I forget why. It's, but. it's the, the spermaceti crystallizes, which there's a horrible image. Yeah, um, so it somehow had formed into like gross globules that they had yeah, to burst. Yeah, and if you want to, if you want to try out the most oil from the spermaceti, you want it to be of a like consistency that is very useful for the like industrial process. And so you have this process of, okay, we need to, we need to work out all the lumps basically and get this clear so that it will process better. And that's, that's why they're doing this. And it's not as though it was a super uncommon task, but it wasn't necessary to produce oil. It was just a way of maximizing the amount of oil you can produce. Yeah. And so like, genuinely, you totally could have left this out, even if you were like, well, I really need to depict the process of whale processing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he really did want this spiritual circle jerk in there for some reason. I mean, it is one of the really memorable scenes of the book that people talk about online when they talk about Moby Dick, and I don't think that's a, like, coincidence. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, And I think he felt like he had to have it. That, that seems likely, and maybe he also just straight up wanted to do more Queequeg-Ishmael shipping, or, you know, musical version of Queequeg and musical version of Ishmael shipping. <sighs> I, I think it's worth noting, I'd say, I think by this point, this was already decided it was going to be an audience participation thing, and this is a funny thing, you know, yeah, in, a no, very, in a very cynical, like, I think the, oh, ho, 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 we surprised you with having to squeeze this stuff. Yeah. Is part of the point. Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally right. I think there is a, a very real sense of like, all right, we're going to get these people on stage. We're going to get them wailing. What's some wild shit we can make them do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the wild shit would be a boat that is actually acting like a whale boat yeah. and not like a small world. So I guess this is how we get the excitement. Pull one of those, uh, what's it called? Uh, like bar bucking bronco oh, thing oh god but oh sh- god. make it look like a whale and have stuff have like uh have it throw off audience members but then have stub jump on and obviously it goes like slightly softer so that stub can really stay on and do the mm-hmm. harpoon in my that mind i was rule. going like yeah we're casting a rodeo clown <laughs> i was going way more like unpractical with it i'm picturing one of those like carnival rides where it's like the viking ship that goes like in circles and they go upside down one oh, of those ones man. <laughs> I'm trying to think about whether there would be any practical way to do the line, Ben. Uh, I mean, in the sense that the most important thing about the line is that it kills men. Probably not, but... (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah, but just, like, having the line running out through the boat and, like, like having a bunch of ropes, like, like, you could do some weird abstract shit with the uh, the whale line that's on the harpoon that you throw into the whale. But I... The thing that I mean when I say the line is that it, something that's emphasized very clearly in the novel is that when you're on a whale boat, the line that is connected to the harpoon that's going to connect to the whale. And then is going to go out so fast that it will make, it will smoke and need to be wet with water and slowed down so that it doesn't catch on fire and burn Jesus. apart. That line mm-hmm. is coiled all over the whale boat. You're literally like sitting on top yeah, of it. Yeah, to get, in order to slow it down as it goes out, it's been run back and forth and all around in like multiple loops on lots of little pulleys so that the whale boat doesn't have just one point of tension that will take all the stress from the whale because again you're on a tiny little boat that's kind of built to be destroyed because you know a whale can destroy even a big boat so this one's kind of a throwaway and you need it to be able to take the pressure of the line running out and catching fire so, so yeah you, you could just dangle line all over I, your uh <laughs> yeah so, and like this is 
this is part of what's so terrifying about being in a whale boat is that you can't even sit still. You've got to be moving around all the time so that you don't, like, get caught in this line. Well, no, you've <laughs> got to be... The line should be staying in one place or else something's gone really wrong because it's just moving in lines. But you have to move around to row and to hand harpoons and so on. But there's this line buzzing past you that if you touch is going to burn you or, like, like give you a horrible rash or even if you get caught in it, possibly behead you or, te- or kill you or choke you. So... You're surrounded by death at all times on a whaleboat, and it doesn't sound like that is the I'm effect on like, the audience. Like they could have done a funky, like, tug-of-war thing, like, one group of the audience is the whale, and the other oh. one is the crew, and then everyone else has to do something, like, on either side of the tug-of-war line, so I have to go under it to do one thing and then go back to do another. That would have been fun. Oh, God, that would be so good. You could I have done love so to play much Same. in the theater. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. much bullshit. Oh my god. Oh, man. Uh, this um, this musical has so much wasted potential for just fun. And then mm-hmm. it didn't. <laughs> yeah, and I... then it didn't. So <sighs> I'm curious about are these the same? I feel like Oh no, never mind. The Bachelor is not wait. Not the Rachel. Not the or... Rachel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wait. But yeah, let's let's move on to the Bachelor, which is where they but, meet. Uh, yeah. Okay, never mind. I was saying like the Bachelor does not. The Bachelor is the one where someone has lost their arm yeah. to Moby. Dick, yes, right? that doesn't appear. Okay, yes. but that's so not that's, in the lyrics. That's combining two different scenes. Well, also, yeah, the the thing where Captain Boomer has the like uh, ivory arm is not in the Genius lyrics. Oh, it, it's wild. a yeah, it's a scene like it's a, it's a dialogue scene, scene yeah, yeah. that I want to yeah. say happens yeah. after so the song. We should quickly give the the information about what this song is. Is that so? It, the Pequod meets the Bachelor, which is a returning boat. It's they've just got oodles of sperm from their successful whaling voyage. They're returning in joy and glory and riches. And the captain of the Bachelor is Captain Boomer, who has lost an arm yeah. to Moby Dick. And so then we have this scene after the song of Ahab going, "You saw Moby Dick. You lost an arm." And he's like, he's seeking for, like, this, you know, fellowship and awe, so you tried to kill him, right? Did you kill him? Do I not get to kill him? And Boomer goes, why the fuck would I try to kill the whale that already took my arm? I've only got one more, man. Come on. And look how rich and full of sperm I am. And Ahab goes, okay, we're leaving. There's nothing for us here. And this is this is a conflation of two different scenes in the book, one of which is uh, Captain Boomer had his own ship, the name of which I'm not remembering right now. Uh, the Samuel Enderby out Thank of London. Thank you, the Samuel Enderby of London, <laughs> yes. Uh, where we meet, and there's this whole scene where Ahab, like, as soon as he sees, he hears they've seen the white whale, and he's like, yes, I'm going across. And he sees that the other captain has a hammer. He's like, holy shit, I need to talk to this captain. And everyone's preparing for a gam, which is like a party where the crews of the whaleboats will mix and chat and exchange letters and so on. But then... In, like, five minutes of conversation with Boomer, it becomes clear that Boomer does not think killing the white whale is the only way to deal with the horrible maiming he has received, and is in fact quite chill about it, and is cracking jokes, and Ahab is just getting more and more upset, and, like, kind of, like, just, like, how can you be like this? The whale took your limb. You surely must hunt him to the ends of the earth. And Boomer's like... I just don't think it's a good idea. And Abe's like, no, it's not. It's a necessary act. Bye. <laughs> I'm just going to go be really rich in London. Yeah. Cause... yeah and th- <laughs> hey, Boomer is literally like, 
ripped your leg, <laughs> but I'm different. Yeah, and and so it's I do think that combining Boomer and the Bachelor in this is fine because like the idea that Boomer is so flush with uh with sperm that he doesn't have to worry about this. He's going to be rich. It's all fine. In the novel. Boomer is not actually having a perfectly good whaling voyage. He's having an okay one other than the bit where he lost an arm and has had to recover. But he's he's being philosophical about it, like, I'm still going to make fine money. I've lost an arm, that's terrible, but I can live with this. Whereas, I'm not, I'm not dead. Whereas, uh, the Bachelor's Captain actually doesn't believe in Moby Dick at all. As part of our <laughs> ongoing, like, uh, like <laughs> exactly, like this real. ongoing sort of Sorry. sense of, like, how do people relate to Moby Dick? And, like, how do captains relate to Moby Dick is this really interesting through line where new captains or incompetent captains have never heard of Moby Dick. The Bachelor's captain, who's super successful and has never encountered any kind of misfortune in the, whale, in the whaling grounds, despite the fact that, like, every other ship is having a terrible year, uh, he doesn't believe Moby Dick actually exists. He's never seen Moby Dick. And then there's Ahab or these... Um, you know, these boats that have had terrible years or terrible times, they've all encountered Moby Dick. So there's a sense in which you get this complicated or at least ambiguous sense of, like, does Moby Dick represent just, like, misfortune generally? And so someone who uh, has never undertaken misfortune just doesn't believe in Moby Dick, like, that the world is not cruel, the world is kind. And so by combining them, you get a very different effect, but I think it works. For the musical... I think that combining uh, Boomer and the Bachelor Captain works fine. And that's my entire thoughts on this sequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 also it's not sung, which is like, fine, but also, why? I don't know, you could do a slightly fun song with Ahab going, like, this is a good place maybe for Ahab's, almost I want to say this is a better place, music, like, theatrically for me for Ahab's song like Dawn or whatever just because yeah damned in the midst um, of paradise this is why he's uh, like you know he yeah, kind of just a... starts doing it later and it's like I don't know you could I feel like you could move this even earlier if you're gonna totally edit the book why not get yeah. the why not make him explain why he cares a lot about this in response to someone who doesn't care a lot about this yeah um, no, an Ahab Boomer like duet where they're presenting their contrasting views on their experience mm-hmm. with Moby Dick. Because in, like, in the book, the, exactly, and in the chapter, it's called hand like uh, leg and arm, Ooh. and it's about like the <laughs> that's a good exactly, name for a song. <laughs> that would just be a great song title, and like the idea that Boomer is like in some ways healthier than Ahab about dealing with this maiming, but in other ways is like failing to comprehend the deep meaning of Moby Dick is a really interesting tension that exists in uh, in the book and that really doesn't feel like it's here, especially because it's really unclear why you have them talking for this and not for various other things. And I have to imagine part of it is that the dialogue they are pulling from the novel to make this sort of abbreviated version of it is just not really good for singing and Malloy hates writing words when he could copy Wait, which them. Which is, is baffling to me because, so he thought those other lines were good for singing but these ones, oh no, even even I, Dave Malloy, <laughs> can't touch that. Yeah. Where, do, where, where do you draw the line, Dave Malloy? Tell us, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> uh, yeah. 
What's next? I'm, I... The Triworks? I barely remember this, and I, I like the bit of the book it's based on, but I barely even remember this song from the musical. Also, oh, I don't want to just bring everyone along. Oh, uh, I... No, no, sorry. I I mean, I, I'd be good moving on. Yeah, if, unless next... anyone else... I, I would like to hear any thoughts on Boomer and uh, and the The Bachelor, but it really doesn't... I don't have anything else to no. say about it. It, like, it came and went. In it every was scene in... <laughs> where another boat comes along, there's like a... I remember there was kind of like a little pedestal either near the audience or somewhat in the audience that the actor would stand on and be like, I'm the captain of this ship. Ooh. Woo! Yeah. Honestly, I don't hate that, but it mm-hmm. sounds like it wasn't used no, to great it effect. Was, it was just another case of like, this could have been cool, but I mean, I feel like staging and blocking wasn't really done. And like, I know we're talking a lot about Dave Malloy because these are his words, but like Rachel Chavkin, the director, I... I don't know, like, I hear a lot of really good things about what she did, especially with Great Comet, but, like, in this musical, at least, I don't mm-hmm. see too much of, like, the, the brilliance that I had heard of, you know? And it's, like, mm-hmm. not not to, like, yeah. diss on her yeah. work, this might have just been, like, a bad day for her, but, yeah. It's also, look at what she's yeah. working with. Yeah. But, yes, let's move on. <sighs> um, oh, I'm always... I, I'm sympathetic to any director who has to deal with a playwright who is not only alive but like oh, for up sure, in their business. For sure. um, <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm oh, firmly of a playwright writes the thing and then they have evaporated into the air. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um but the triworks. Yeah. Uh, so there this is was a, Fidala this being is Fidala. Fidala. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's also I, I would like to hear so we were just saying that they're <laughs> we're we're just kind of dissing the staging, uh, which yeah, is fair yeah. enough. Mm-hmm. But there's a so on the Genius page, there's a photo, which is apparently from the ART's Instagram, of, like, what this looks like. And it appears to have had a bunch of, like, fake flames on the side of the and, stage. And, like, scaffolding and lighting. Is is that the case? Did you get the impression that there was, like, a part of the stage that appeared to uh, be on fire? Where are you seeing the photo? And is it in a, on a specific line? Um, so I, I'm looking at Genius on mobile, so it might look different from yours, but it's like if you mm. scroll all the way down to where it says about, uh, like about the song. Yeah, there's an expandable thing. Oh. Uh, the Instagram page. Yeah, that was, that was a thing. That's um, at the back of the stage, yeah. I believe. Yeah, because there oh. is like a little... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the back the of the stage. They're thing, facing yeah. away from... They're facing yeah, away from Yeah, because, like, you can us. see, like, the yeah, curved yeah, wooden thing. And also, like, just, we, we yeah, didn't yeah, mention yeah. sort of kind of in the middle back of the stage, there is a crow's nest sort of situation. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. where um, Tashtigo and Dagu do Other their whale, whale song yeah. interludes yeah, from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, yeah. The one thing I noticed about triworks and that sticks with me is uh besides the bit where it's just you know they're describing the trying out of the oil which is where you uh basically uh i almost said (laughs) smelt you you melt down the blubber into oil you you know take out the impurities and then you cork it up and, and store it and so there's this like furnace running all through the night and ishmael has this great sequence of images of hell and like the image of the ship full of ahab's burning will burning in the night uh you know casting red shadows on the sea as it plunges along it's real good in the book it's it's verbal pyrotechnics and so i can see why it gets a song Mm -hmm. but if the staging wasn't super visually memorable i can't imagine this song having any reason to exist i kind of wish that they'd done more they'd 
translated the verbal pyrotechnics into not literal pyrotechnics, but like, or like not literally, because I could see, I I wish they'd made this ship out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like more, you know, like at the back, I wish they'd gone, I, I kind of. I feel like there you could be more immediately metaphorical, mm-hmm. more like, I don't know, especially because I'm reading the, like, I better saw the madness, the the redness, the madness, the ghastliness of others, and like, I don't know, give me some, give me a, like... Ghastliness and madness. Give me a give me a trip. Give me a terrifying me, trip here. Yeah, as yeah. the I mean, uh, literally Ishmael does fall asleep at the helm during this sequence in the book. You could easily have like a wild dream sequence kind of thing that ends with him being woken up at the helm yeah. and realizing that he's uh, he specifically managed to somehow get himself physically turned around so he was facing backwards off the ship and was like, "Where is everything? I only see smoke and water and fire." Oh, oh, I. I turned around physically while I was supposed to be keeping the helm from going off. Yeah, like, Oops. give me some, like, Dies Ira Inferno stuff. Just, like, give me that. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be so good. And this is the introduction of the idea of, like, redness, which will happen again later in a way that really <laughs> didn't feel like a through line to me, but it, it's, it's a thing. The stage yeah. is red, and this song, um... I don't remember any of it. I do remember uh, what's his name, Fidala's part. Fidala's part yeah, was yeah. notable. Yeah, yep. um, and this, by the way, uh, there's like a very small and like, in a sense, subtle but uh, I think interesting change to how Fidala's prophecy works here. Um, so this prophecy is in the book. Um, it it is basically used in the book in the same way that it's used in the stage show. In that, you know, Fidala prophesies to Ahab about how Ahab will die, and then pretty much it comes true point by point, and it is pointed out in the it's book. It's very Macbeth. Like, that's the that's the mm-hmm. best ver- literary connection to it. It's, here is a set of, way, you know, vague images, like, you will die by hemp, that you will be preceded in your death by two hearses, one not, of human ha- not made by human hands, and one of American wood. It's straightforwardly, the woods will come to Dunsinane. An apparently impossible image that, of course, actually happens. Yeah. Um, the, th- the the little change here that really stands out to me, though, is that in the book, where Fidala gets this prophecy from is never stated. He just says this. We don't know how he has this knowledge. Um, in the show, there's um, they have these whale heads hanging up on either side of the ship. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if you two remember that at all, because it, it didn't sound like it was in the staging. Um, it just gets mentioned in the lyrics. Yeah, least. it gets mentioned in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fidala says that he's reading the future on their face, which I interpreted to mean in context that he is reading the future by looking at these whale heads, presumably by like looking at the, the kind of wrinkled markings that are on the skin of the whales. Um, which is a, like bizarre inversion of an image in the novel where there's a moment when Ahab like looks at this head of a whale that he has hanging by the side of his ship and thinks about as if thinks about like what if these markings on the skin of this whale were like hieroglyphics no no it's it's he's thinking about what if this whale could speak and tell me all the secrets it has seen the markings and hieroglyphics are Ishmael talking about the idea that whale skin 
Mm, has okay, markings right. on them that might be read that seem like a language but are completely incomprehensible. So there's this repeated idea of whales having secrets locked within them. The fact that the whale has no speaking voice. The fact that the whale, uh, the whale's head now dead and drawn up, has been to places that no human has ever been or could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 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 name of that section and sort of the way I think about it, the speech is the Sphinx speech, where Ahab has this like incredibly dramatic speech about you know you. You know, thou hast seen all the mysteries of the deeps, but thou cannot, you know, uh, speak them to me. Um, and it's really cool. And now here, Fidala can just straightforwardly draw true knowledge out of the whale head, rather than, as occurred in the book, Fidala had prophetic dreams that he then recounted to uh, Ahab. And so yeah. it's an interesting little change. And I mean, the thing that's weird to me about this change is that I feel like it's, I feel like it's a move buy a Moby Dickhead for Moby Dickheads that means nothing to anyone else. <laughs> like, I see this and I'm like, but but Fidala can read the secret knowledge of the whale? Dave Malloy, what are you saying? And the answer is, nothing. he's saying nothing to most people. And not even to most people. He's sta- he's in the Fidala section. The idea that Fidala's mystic bullshit is basically just mystic bullshit and purely exists on the level. Yeah. Like, just presenting things in the writing. Like, this is... These are the three, this is the three witches from Macbeth solely for setting up the idea that Ahab's always doomed. The idea that he's reading this from the whale doesn't mean yeah, anything. It's just a rearrangement. And by the end of this, Fidala has kind of served his purpose in the musical narratively. Like, this is it. This is yeah. it for him. Yeah, he'll, <laughs> yeah, he'll repeat the same lines later and then he'll die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, also, the fact that he explicitly says, I die first, you die second, is, in the book, what he says is, uh, I will go before you as your pilot, but then you will see me again. Oh! Uh, like why, said, am, why am I denied that? That's so good! It is so good! Like, the idea of, the idea of Fidala as Ahab's pilot in the boat who is guiding him onwards to this fate, and who is going to die, but in doing so ensure that Ahab, like, meets God and is destroyed by God, all of that's just not there, and not even the words of it are there, and instead, to make this bit rhyme, Dave Malloy decided to call the first hearse misunderstood, rather than, uh, formed by no human hand, which is, it's even less Macbeth. Yeah, I... It's, it's like, yeah, something weird will happen. Yeah, it's so strange that, that this is one of the places where he rewrites the language, and he rewrites it to be uh, more rhythmic and, and, and like, like a, you know, for <laughs> once. Dave Malloy <laughs> is making things rhyme where they didn't formerly rhyme, mm-hmm. but, like, it it's... <laughs> he's not... Uh, He's making it more confusing in doing that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's frankly hard. It's weird because it reads like mystic yes. bullshit. Yeah. Like, he's rewritten it to be more mystic bullshit than... It sounds like the prophecy actually, like, before is very rooted in the language and norms and ideas of whale ships. Yeah, no, it's very like, much presenting this sort of like again i think macbeth is a really good uh, connection it's presenting these images that will become clear over the course of only over the course of this final act as events occur and like the idea that you preemptively say you you will first see an omen that you will misunderstand then you will see an omen that you do understand is just like 
it, that goes beyond like postmodern winking to just mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What Fr- is frustrating? It really is. Uh, and I think that's uh, I. That is all I have to say about the mm-hmm. Triworks. Did have more to say than I, I remember because I forgotten that the prophecy was there. I was gonna <sighs> say, I'm very happy to no matter where it ends, speak out the rest of the next whale song interlude. Okay, yeah. Let's do the next yeah. whale song yeah. interlude. Not and, and past that, probably... because after that, the cabin in dusk, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's, we can have a Starbuck and Pip yeah. recording session. Fun times. <laughs> Alright, yeah. so yeah, the next one is another one of these whale song interludes. Uh, Dagu and Teshtigo and chilling. Cheers. Look, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, and I'm not, you know, uh, an expert in indigenous studies or anything. I gotta say, it's real weird that they, that new to this version of Moby Dick, Tashtigo can speak whale. Like... Yes, it is strange. (laughs) They made the Native American able to literally speak with an animal. Yeah. Yeah. All of this stuff about what whale song is, what blue whales are, um, the difference between the whale song of different species of whales, absolutely none of this is in Moby Dick. I don't think the concept of whale song comes up in the novel at all. Humpbacks are not particularly hunted for oil, and blue whales are not known to definitely exist at time of writing. So, like, like Moby Dick, in Moby Dick, Ishmael basically says, blue whales? I don't believe they exist. Like, because, and, and part of this is he wants to take the position that sperm whales, Leviathan, the mighty toothed whale that we hunt, is the largest thing living on Earth that has ever been or will be. He needs, for his symbolic register, the sperm whale to be the biggest whale, so he poo-poos the idea of the blue whale as the largest (laughs) whale and says, these are probably misidentified humpbacks. Like, or something like that. I don't remember the specifics from cytology. But there's a... He's consciously... Melville is consciously saying, okay, but for Ishmael's symbolic universe, sperm whales are the biggest whales. Mm -hmm. Go with it. Yeah. And, um... You, you know, uh, the, just... the imagery of whale song, and to some extent specifically blue whale song, as representing kind of the voice of nature and like this beautiful thing that humanity is harming, that's like, that's like 70s ass <laughs> new age shit. If you yeah, want mystic it's... bullshit, we got it here. I want to note that in the program, one of I was very confused because one of his references is a Star Trek movie. It's yes, two, yeah, the, the <laughs> one of them and another one. And yeah, I'm not, was... I I don't go to Star Trek. But uh-huh. then I remembered the pop trivia thing that the other one is the one where the dolphins are like sentient, like the whales are talking to the space probe or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, is this? You're kind of getting this from Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. The idea that, like, in the future, I believe the the Star Trek, what is it, For the Voyage Home? I think that's the Voyage Home. Star Trek For the Voyage Home, which is one of the ones he lists. If And Trekheads, get at me if I get this wrong. I'm not a huge Trekhead. Uh, 
Trekkie, sorry. <laughs> um, the basic plot is that in the future, a powerful alien species has returned to Earth. The Federation has been trying to contact them and they won't speak to them at all and is now, like, basically ransacking the planet Earth to try and find something. And then they discover that the sound that the aliens are making is blue whale song and blue whales are extinct in this timeline. So... Uh, they have to send the crew of the Enterprise back in time to the present day to rescue, to save the whales so that the whales can save us from their alien allies looking for them. And so it's a very, I mean, it's cheesy, but it's a very well-regarded Star Trek movie. And the basic concept is honestly very charming of like, oh, to prevent our own extinction in the future, we need to ensure the survival of whales now. It, the metaphor is about as blunt as a hammer, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it, it works for Star Trek, which is the most unsarcastic, <laughs> sincere, desperately, like, goofy, utopian science fiction ever on a good day. I'm, obviously, it does other things as well, and it does various good things as well. I don't want to totally simplify a whole franchise, but... For the voyage home, believing in the power of whale song to save humanity is kind of a necessary starting condition. And putting that in Moby Dick, a novel about where... The whale, the figure of the whale, of the white whale, is possibly God and also the enemy of humanity, maybe? Mm -hmm. Like, there's no engagement with that. Is, is Moby Dick, like, the vengeance of Gaia? Is Moby Dick, you know, maybe the dark side of nature? Is Moby Dick human, like, capitalism and whiteness and all that that is, like, it, it just doesn't work out well because if you make Moby Dick, if you make whaling inherently wrong and attempting to kill Moby Dick inherently wrong within the concepts and structure of the novel, what are you left with? Um, I, I would uh, like to read the, the lyrics of what yes. uh, Tigo says is what the whale says. I want to, I, because we've gotten to read a lot of great bits from oh, Moby Dick. Yeah, we offer if one this of you would guests. like to read it, please. Uh, I can read it. So, great, all right, yeah, great enjoy that. dying cities yeah. overrun with weeds and vines. Bones of whales, man, and mastodons litter the streets, turned to dust. Amidst a circus of moths and fleas, underground a vast mushroom grows, singing songs of a new world. Song is when wars are over. So, yeah. So the whale has a strong concept of the human species and its extinction as a possibility for new life and environmentalism. The whale is literally saying extinctionism. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think this is, you know, this is trying to be like an, an ambiguous kind of uh, green apocalypse, right? In that, like, we're also talking about bones of whales and mastodons, right? So this is after humans have potentially, uh, after human activity has led to extinction, right? I think that's what's alluded to by the idea of mastodons, which, mm. you know, were hunted to extinction by humans. Um, but then also there's, there's, there's post-human life. There's weeds, vines, moths, fleas, a mushroom. mushroom. Um, only one. Only one. <laughs> one really big mushroom, and I don't get what it's doing. Well, I mean... It's the it's big mushroom in, in Oregon. There's the biggest living thing. Oh, no, the second biggest, I think, because there's also that big grove of aspens. But the biggest living thing is a mushroom in Oregon, and it's often it's cited like, as bigger than whales. Yeah, it's like oh. a huge, it's like a, a, a network, yeah, right? The, 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 yeah. the mycelium. They're all, like, connected yeah. underground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and it's like, this, 
this idea that blue whales know what humanity is doing and they're looking forward to a world after like evil humanity has faded away it's so it is despite claiming to be something that is kind of like centering nature and like representing the perspectives of the natural world that aren't human perspectives it is a deeply like anthropocentric anthropocentric like blinkered Mm -hmm. idea of what nature is it is it is like imagining a blue whale that can't conceive of itself except in the context of humans yeah yeah it's everyone cares about us and you know maybe they'll be happy when we're gone but they all care about us. And and the blue whale sort of perceives itself as fundamentally on the side of the rest of nature. Mm. Somehow the blue whale also knows what moths and fleas are and sees itself as somehow being on the same side or in the same world as moths and fleas. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, which is, you know, I won't say the novel never positions whales as kind of representative of the world of nature. It certainly does that. But it does that because it's, Using whales as symbols. At no point does it actually claim, oh yeah, uh, I know what whales think of themselves. It, it's just like a, <sighs> a very odd, I want to say, response to sort of Malloy's criticism of the book and being this is, and incorrectly saying this book is about how whales are useful to us and that's it. So I'm saying, you know, we, they are not useful to us. They are mm. entirely separate from us and we're going to kill them. And we as humans are the unique virus that's going to destroy nature. Because it is very anthropocentric, but it entirely, it, instead of a 180, it's kind of a 360 back into the same idea. Which is, is increasingly baffling, yeah. especially because at some points Molloy tries to, you know... I'm saying this specifically because uh, Tashtigo, you know, the the native character, is the one saying this. We he he's trying to center, you know, Native American mentality and like we are on their land and they are important. And then giving this mm-hmm. character some of the most like waspy white Western American ideas of nature I and mean, humanity. There's. Given that he also previously brought up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, there's an image that I can't escape that's like a, it's a famous image. Um, uh, the name is not exactly uh, great. It's, you've all, I'm sure you've heard of like the, the crying Indian like environmentalist yeah. ads with like the guy in the war bonnet looking out over litter and like dropping a single tear. And I feel like they've taken Tashtigo from, you know, a pretty flat character who just represents hey, there is a hunting tradition that has now become part of, that from my perspective as Melville has become part of the harpooner tradition of, uh, you know, Native American hunters becoming uh, whalers. And did you know there's a bunch of, like, shore whaling traditions that uh, have existed that were done by various cultures? It's cool, and it's part of this into... By the way, Tashtigo, now a full character, and he gets to do the uh, the single tear yeah, by the roadside. And that's something I, I wanted to point out before. It's sort of the idea, it, it demonizes all killing of every whale ever, uh, and mm-hmm. com- at the same time sort of becomes one of those like weird Twitter feuds between uh, someone from like a native culture being like, yes, we we have to kill like certain animals, and that's part of our culture, and we do it in a certain way, and all of the like green vegans are like, that's bad. Stop. You are the devil. <laughs> yeah. There's just so there's so much going on in the decision to put these words in these actors' mouths and these particular like characters. And it's it, again, we've talked a lot about the idea that Dave Malloy is laundering ideas through mm-hmm. his characters and through their identities. 
And yeah, I think that if you if you just imagine Dave Malloy, just replace any given character with Dave Malloy, and you know, I'm not saying that's a perfect heuristic for determining whether or not a playwright should write something. I think that, you know, there's a lot more options and, you know, if you do things conscientiously you can, but like if Dave Malloy gave this little This is what the whale is saying. Death it would be laughable and also obviously like kind of self-aggrandizing but by putting it in the mouth of a native american character and a native american actor he's now producing this certain degree of like well if you you know question this hmm are you questioning you know uh, native american spirituality yes. or something like there's this weird sense that it's trying to put it outside of the realm of the kind mm-hmm. of discourse you could normally exactly. direct at dave malloy I also think there's, like, a bizarre thing going on here where, like, and, and this definitely connects also to, the like, the big plastic patch thing that was talked about before, that idea of, like, can we escape, quote-unquote, this? Um, mm-hmm. Where, like, you know, the idea that the sort of environmentally best thing for nature, for the rest of the world, would be if humanity died out, is a a perspective that basically says humans are inherently extractive Mm -hmm. inherently unnatural there is no way for human beings to simply be a part of an ecosystem and like participate in that ecosystem which includes eating um the, the only way that human beings interact with animals is like uh you know is purely extractive and so the only way to like save nature is for humanity to be gone there's no way for like human existence to somehow reconcile itself with Mm -hmm. the rest of the natural world um and that's like uh, you know that's that like in some sense projecting the uh way that industrial capitalism interacts Mm -hmm. with the natural Mm -hmm. world onto every human culture that has ever existed historically yeah and i do want to say i think that i think the history of human and natural and human relationships with the quote-unquote rest of the natural world is a huge and complicated history it's not something you can even if you're trying you're taking the most like pessimistic view possible and you're making your argument about why this is sort of inherited you'd have to include all these other things and bring them together rather than just this vague doomerism like feeling that you're insisting no no the, the, the whales agree with me the whales totally agree with me and part of this is also the fact that this is uh there's a little bit of science in here as well in that way that it's been kind of unfortunate in this musical where Tesh Tego knows how far a blue whale song can travel, knows that mm-hmm. you can't hear most of it because it's too low. These are things that are not in these are not accessible information just without modern science in a lot of ways, just on terms of scale and in terms of like recording instruments. The idea that there are sounds too low for humans to hear and that we can know that this whale song is mostly that is just not something that occurs outside of the modern material sciences sort of context. And I'm not even saying it's incorrect. I'm just saying that there's this desire to, at the same time, believe science is real and also to express this totally emotional and emotive idea of what this really means. And those two things don't really intersect or support each other, but they're put Mm -hmm. next to each other so that the sort of vague Guyan, uh, Guyan, you know, 
bullshit mysticism shall, or mystical bullshit, shall we say, can be supported by this belief in science. Whereas, you know, any of Ishmael's ideas from the book, those have the wrong science and should be abandoned. And it's, it's just, it works out to this very ambiguous, but very insistent web of no, no, believe what this musical is saying, even when it's not really clear what it's saying or what its argument is. You know what's not present yeah. here, even a little bit? Any of the beliefs that any of the many whaling cultures that have existed worldwide yeah. have had about whales. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. like, I think most societies that have some kind of, you know, traditional form of hunting also have some kind of beliefs about that, right? Yeah, and, and they, they cover all sorts of ground. Yes, that, totally. Um, but, like, there are... There are shore whaling cultures and even like some cultures where people actually go out in boats to hunt whales you know basically everywhere in the world where you get whales coming close enough to shore to do that and like i do not specifically know what like uh historical wampanoag whaling beliefs were i don't actually know how well preserved a lot of that is because this is a culture that was you know destroyed uh, or, or, or like attempted to be destroyed, but the it feels like what's going on here is an evocation of the idea that uh, you know there is some kind of indigenous spirituality that involves like living in harmony with nature, but there is no interest in like the specificity of what those beliefs would have been for like the the tribe or tribes that Tashtigo is supposed to be a part of, or for any of the, any of the other global whaling cultures, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there, there's an, there's an aesthetic evocation of the idea of those beliefs, but there's no engagement with what they actually are. Or there's were. no content to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's exhausting. And yeah, I, I'm not a fan of what this is doing. I, I am hypothetically a fan of Tashtego and Dagu getting more developed personalities than they have in the novel and more chance to be, you know, uh, important and part of the narrative. But this just feels so underdeveloped and so malloy. Yeah, something I like that's in these whale song interludes, something that I think could have been like a very interesting thing. And ooh, now that I think about it, this is probably one of the places where Malloy thinks that he's being influenced by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Are the bits oh, where yeah. Tashtigo and Dagu are just kind of like chatting and they're talking about like their lives and their job on the Pequod, right? There's this exchange. That's very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Degu yeah. is like, to be honest, I'm starting to wonder about our captain a bit. Tashigo, you're just now starting to wonder. Degu, ah, we'll be all right. And that's like very obvious meta commentary, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, hmm, is Ahab's like mission somehow dangerous to the crew, right? And the idea that like, the idea that that discussion could be put in the narrative, but put in a kind of like, casual friendly jokey way that we're going to see like Tashigo and Degu's relationship. And we're going to see that they both have some kind of concerns about the situation they're in, but... Uh, they're both humanized. Yeah, they're both humanized, and they maybe have slightly different perspectives on it. Like, Dagu is both the one bringing up the concern, but also the one who dismisses it. So it feels like Dagu is a guy who, at the same time, like, has these fears, but then is also really good at getting himself He's not to confident. worry about them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whereas Tashigo is the one who is a little bit more, like, soberly, like, actually, I think we may have some problems. 
those are interesting little character bits. The idea of like two people who are close, who spend a little bit of time together separate from the narrative to comment on it. That could be something. Um, it's not developed at all, though. No. <laughs> it's purely subordinated to these, uh, you know, I keep calling them doomer environmentalism, and I really stand by it. These extinctionist, these uh, very, like, unthoughtful, pessimistic ways of talking about environmentalism and extinction and species in a way that just doesn't feel earned either by the conversation between the characters or by the thematic content of the statements. Mm-hmm. Just as writing, I don't like it. <sighs> and I think that more or less, unless our guests have something to say about uh, Whale Song Interlude 2 that we haven't gotten to yet, that I think more or less wraps it up. Yep, I have nothing else yeah. to say about it. All right. Hey, this is Mark from another time, uh, because we ended up... Due to how things worked out, we ended up recording just one plug to put across all four uh, Moby Dick and Musical Reckoning episodes. So, um, I have Clay and Danny with me here right now. Um, Danny, do you have anything uh, that you would like to plug? Oh my god, I do have things I'd like to plug. Uh, <laughs> I guess most of the stuff that I do is uh, audio dramas, uh, mostly with Clay, <laughs> kind of exclusively with Clay. <laughs> so, um, we... Um, you can kind of follow us and see sort of what we're doing in that sphere at Wasteland Radio Productions on Instagram. There's nothing, there's not a lot of stuff there yet, but it does link to our uh, sort of completed audio drama project called The Last Show at Last Show Podcast on Instagram. And it's a funky audio drama about a college radio show that survives the end of the world. And, you know, there's a fun cult of English majors and also a terrifying robot god a lot of very exciting times. Uh, we, we made it with our friends. It was our first audio drama. Really fun. I, I recommend you guys uh, check it out if you like, you know, post-apocalypses and, you know, light elements of cosmic horror with some comedy in between. Um, it was a very fun time. And um, if you want to sort of our most recent project or the one that we're currently developing is called uh, Another Man's Poison with Carver Levine. Uh and I guess it's food horror, Clay. I don't know how you 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 have like this vision for how do you want to define it to to people to listeners. Another man's poison with Carver Levine is a culinary horror podcast where you follow food journalist Carver Levine and his trusty producer. I say, <laughs> his trusty producer travel across the nation and eat at the United States' most dangerous restaurants. Yeah. And it's got, like, you know, it, it goes from, like, dangerous to weird to almost fantastical. It's got, it's kind of all over that spectrum. We're very excited for it. We haven't really done anything like this. Uh, so as soon as we start, you know, publishing more things about it, you will see it at Wasteland Radio Productions on Instagram. So please follow us so you can kind of follow along with uh, our progress with that. If you want to follow me personally, I am on Twitter at BerserkerDanDan. And, um... That's a B E R S E K E R D A N D A N, and Wait, yeah, is that, I is that Berserker with no second R S E K? No, that is with another R. I can't spell. I can't look at things and spell them. It's okay. I did it's spelled best. Berserker like the word Berserker. Go berserker Google like Berserker. The word, Google that word and you'll be able to find me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you also found out that I can't spell, so now that's out in the world. Uh, but you can follow me there, and uh, I I just do stuff on Twitter, I guess. 
but, but uh, oh, and if you, I also compose the music for the last show. So if you want to kind of look at my composing endeavors for that, you can see my work at soundcloud.com slash last show podcast. And uh, yeah, you can just listen to the stuff I make there. Awesome. Um, and uh, Clay, did you have anything specific that you also wanted to mention? You can find me on Twitter at Kluby, C-L-O-O-B-Y, X-I-X, Kluby19, but with Roman numerals, at Twitter.com. There is where I announce most of my projects, and a lot of my projects are also found because I write a lot of tabletop role-playing game supplements and games. You can be found at kluby.itch.io. Um, pick awesome. up Chief Among Them. I ha- I wrote a supplement for J Dragon's Wander Home about the ocean and big mythopoetic monsters on the ocean. Which I illustrated. Damn. Yes. I-, I couldn't think of anyone who might listen to our Moby Dick podcast who might be interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, or in culinary horror, honestly. God, there's a lot of culinary horror in Moby Dick. Anyway... <laughs> um, Awesome. Well, I really hope uh, our listeners will go uh, check both of your stuff out um, because I think it's really cool. And uh, like I was just saying, I think there might be some overlaps in interest. Uh, And you can actually also find um, my other podcast, um, Ars Arcanum, which is a podcast about uh, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere novels. Um, And also, uh, to some extent, just about science fiction and fantasy and, and just novels, books in general. Um, you can find that on the Export Audio uh, Podcast Network. Um, you can find that podcast specifically at uh, ars-arcanum, A-R-S-A-R-C-A-N-U-M dot, uh, what is it, pinecast.co, I think that's correct. Um, but Probably actually an easier way to find uh, everything on the Export Audio Network is if you go to their Patreon, which you can find at exportaud.io. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. Um So uh, thank you two both so much again for being on these episodes. And uh, I hope uh, everyone checks their stuff out. We do have um, one little thing we have to do. Oh, yeah, it's the yeah. sign off. Are, uh, oh, can fuck. we just do the sign off and then be, yes, and then hang up? Yeah. Uh, all right. What tune is it you pull to, men? A, a dead, dead whale, whale or, or a stove or a stove boat. boat. <laughs> all right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.